In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1988 to 2001. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. 1988. A simple gesture by Sean Watson. When she moved in, I knew nothing about her. Even her species and sex was in question to me. Sure, there were a few non-humans on this backwashed mining planet, mostly running away from the law on their home worlds. But she wasn't even one of the recognized member species of the Combine. News of the war was always slow to arrive out here, but we all knew that it was going well for the Combine, not so well for the invaders. We knew them as the Skags, their proper name replaced even in serious news with the pejorative-sounding pronunciation. The last news we had was that one of their colony worlds, home of their client species, known to the rest of the galaxy's slaves, had been liberated by combined forces led by the Terran Union Navy and the TU Marines. She was small compared to most species of the combine. Humans are short and compact, sure, as we come from a relatively high gravity planet. But she was as short as me, 150 centimeters. Despite that, she moved as though the gravity was in perfect range for her. I mean, I got used to it after a few months, but I don't know how many times I banged my head on the ceiling trying to run. Moving gracefully in one-third gravity is something that takes practice for a human from Earth. She was bipedal, with long, slender, prehensile tail, and four long arms with four-fingered hands. Her legs and arms had had too many joints, but she moved as though she was made of water. Her head was positioned somewhere between the straight egghead gaze and an upturned gaze as a quadrupedal would have. She was covered in a rust orange fur and a pale ridge of bristle running from between the dark spots above her eyes, which I would later learn were heat pits, to the back of her head. Like a mohawk that was longest at the crest, about ten centimeters. Her eyes were bright yellow and round, with no sclera that I could discern. Of course, having heard nothing of her species, I looked it up the net. She was a Climarty from what the Combine knows as a Haverna Beta II. So far, little was known about their native language, but they also spoke a broken form of Skag due to being unable to voice many of the complex vowels of the language. They were known to be primarily herbivorous, but opportunistic omnivores. The males all displaying complex patterns of black and orange, and the females being a solid color. When they had just begun to build cities, the Skag moved in and made them a client species, putting them to work in massive agricultural projects. As the Combine had breed their planet and driven the Skags out, it was odd that she'd be here. There was be more to the story, but as there was no translators yet built for her kind, there would be no way to ask her. Regardless, I thought she might feel isolated in a sea of aliens. That wouldn't do. I would have to do something to let her know that she wasn't alone, and that she was welcome here. A simple gesture. Sneak rubbed against my legs and let out a plaintive meow. I looked over and saw that this bowl was still half full, but the bottom was visible in the middle. I picked up the bowl, put it on the counter, and smoothed the food out with a spoon so the entire bottom was covered. That seemed to placate him and gave me the idea as well. Sneak, that's a wonderful idea, I said. With the information I had on their diet, at least as far as we knew, I had the perfect plan. After a short trip to the market, I set about making a mess of my cramped kitchen. It wasn't often I got to do things like this, 
even though it always put me in a good mood. So it was later that afternoon that I knocked on her door, a fresh apple pie in hand. I could hear movement on the other side of the door, then nothing. I wondered if she could see me through the door with her heat pits. Just in case, I raised a hand and waved. I just wanted to say welcome to the town, then, um, uh, planet. The door opened a crack and a bright yellow eye peeked out. She said something that sounded like music played on an oboe, soft, sweet, and plaintive. I offered the pie and she looked at it with what I took to be confusion. I mimed eating and offered it again. The door opened a bit more and one of her hands came out and touched the pie with the filling had been bubbled through the cutouts in the crust. Seeing the sticky bit on her finger, I mimed tasting my own finger. Her hand disappeared behind the door and a moment later her eye opened wide, her pupil dilated to an uncanny size and the door opened the rest of the way. She eyed the pie and spoke in a musical language again. I took it to be a question and held the pie for her to take. Yes, for you. She took it carefully in her upper hands while her lower hands reached out as if to steady my arm at the elbow. Her touch was gentle, but I could feel the rough calluses of hard work. When she had hold of the pie, her lower hands moved to cradle the tin from the base and she carried it into a flat, carrying it as though it was a precious, fragile thing. I stood at the open door, unsure of what to do, until she set the pie on the table and motioned me in. At least I understood that. Once I was in the flat, she rushed to shut the door after ensuring the hallway was clear. I didn't know what she'd experienced, but it must have been traumatic. She offered to help me into a chair. Her every action was subservient. This won't do, I thought. I moved past her, pulled out the chair for her, and motioned for her to sit. She looked confused, but sat anyway. Knowing how these flats were kitted out, I went to a kitchen and pulled out two forks, two plates, and a knife. I set out the plates and forks and cut two slices from the pie, placing hers on a plate first. After I sat, she was still looking at the fork and sliced pie, unsure of what to do. I picked up my fork and showed her by example. In just a couple of tries, she got the hang of it. With every bite, she savored it, making a high-pitched tweening sound that took to be giggling. I shared small talk with her, and she responded in her own language. Neither of us understood what the other was saying, but we got the context. Just two friendly neighbors enjoying a chat. She finished her slice of pie and looked at the remaining pie in the tin. I winked at her. Help yourself, I said. I guess she understood, because she forked another bite out, directly from the tin. I chuckled and followed suit, and she made her musical giggling noise again. Continuing that way, we demolished half the pie between the two of us before I pointed at myself and said, Kara. She caught on right away after some practice, could sing my name the most beautiful version I'd ever heard, and she pointed to herself and sang, Zali'i. The pitch changes were pretty close to the sing-song I use when I'm looking for Sneak, singing, Here, kitty, kitty. I sang her voice that way where she patted my shoulders with upper hands, making the melodic giggle sounds. I managed to teach her yes and no with much miming and example. She told me how to sing a greeting, and I'm not sure whether it was just hello or good morning or what, but I learned it. We spent a while longer just enjoying each other's company. I think I'm starting to get to read on her expressions. She sang something and looked at me as if waiting for an answer. 
I said, um, yes? She squinted and let out a giggle sound again before patting my shoulder. I think she made a joke at my expense. Felt good. I joined in in the laughter. As the afternoon wore on, I could see that she was starting to fade. Sugar crash, I guessed. I excused myself after exchanging an at first awkward, then quite warm and friendly hug as she caught on to what I was doing. I think I found a new friend. End of story. Story number two. Who's Afraid of a Paintbrush? Written by Hidden Fox. Standing in front of the human's artwork. I can't tell you much. I can tell you that it is painted on a canvas. I can tell you that the line work is precise. I can tell you that the paint is flawless, not bubble or boiled up on its surface. I can't tell you what it means. Like the human said, art is subjective. The canvas shows a landscape of stagnation and decay, of dead dreams and withered ideas. Posters seem to flap in the dreary wind. A proud and mighty hierarchical flag waves above a pile of starved corpses. I can't tell you what it means, but I can tell you that the hierarchy won't like it. The human must be mad, insane, suicidal. The hierarchy has rules for art. Art must display the might of the people, the power of the hierarchs, and the utopian conditions of the hierarchy. The human knows the rules. The human did not follow them. A portrait in the galley shows a hierarch, not the pure peak of physical perfection, but as a flawed and weak creature. The human painted a landscape of urban decay and starving people. The human painted what they saw. They told me, not what the hierarchs did. The human was mad. They had planned to unveil what they called their masterpiece, my magnum opus today. I know I'm lucky to see it as it is because it won't exist for long. It sits in front of me, exactly three by five. The human called it, Who's Afraid of a Paintbrush? It was three long, simple lines, red, yellow, blue, simple, plain, and unmistakably the rebel flag. I was told that when they came for the human, they went willingly, that they left unbound, that they smiled in front of the ditch, and that they kept their pride, their dignity, it seems like they found the answer. End of story. 1989. We Can Do It Cheaper. Written by Initial Macaron 4340. The galaxy was home to a myriad of species of diverse talents. The Crid, descendants of apex predators that once stalked their primordial death world, were consummate warriors, and their preferred mercenaries of discerning despots and warlords. The Metics, with synthetic minds that dreamt in ones and zeros, were designers and fabricators of the most powerful computers and programmers in the entire galaxy. The Slen, charismatic shapeshifters native to the only Class Zero garden worlds in existence, monopolized the pleasure industries. The Nerek, a race based entirely on off-world habitat shifts, maintained the most reliable starlines and shipping agencies that ever plied the interstellar highways. The Teleron, a race of reptilians with an evolutionary inability to make contextual value judgments and who viewed operational redundancy as an art form, understandably became the pillar that held up the galactic bureaucracy. An immediate consequence of this elaborate network of specialized roles 
was that it was practically impossible for innocent members of the galactic community to become a major economic or political presence. For every young race with an affinity for a particular field, there existed an older one that completely dominated it. But there was one exception to the rule, an outlier case. On an unremarkable G-type main sequence star on the western spiral of the galaxy, there existed a particularly remarkable young race of bipedal primates. The humans, as the primates call themselves, were remarkable because they went down a path no other race did before them. Rather than attempting to progressively become better at a certain field, they invested time and money into every possible industry they could get their hands on. An act of complete insanity. No entity, let alone an ascent race, could hope to excel in any one area if their attention and resources were spread over so many fields all at once. But the humans did, and they were even familiar enough with their strange tactic that they even had a name for it, Portfolio Diversification. The craziest part of it is that it all worked out, and all because of a single magic statement. A promise whispered into the auditory organs of all willing listeners. We can do it cheaper. Metacomputers could do practically everything from something as simple as simple arithmetic to something as impossible as determining the exact position and momentum of a subatomic particle at the same time. Of course, quality does not come cheap, and an entry-level metic system on average was priced the same as a small moon. But a common trait amongst governments everywhere, that fiscal agitations in certain non-essential areas, such as education and healthcare. And that was where the humans came in. Sure, their computers had slower processes, less efficient heat sinks, and lesser amounts of memory than their average. But they were cheap and they never required maintenance because they ran on Linux. And even if they did, chances are, there was an archive thread somewhere in an ancient corner of the human internet that taught you how to fix the precise problem that plagued your system. Soon, human computers graced hospitals and university offices and high school computer labs across the galaxy, bringing up crucial public funding to be injected into more serious matters, such as the military or the politicians' wallets. The humans had a name for this tactic too. Unsurprisingly, they called it niche marketing, which is to target a small section of consumers rather than whole markets. The Slen devoted an entire culture in the pursuit of the highest forms of art and pleasure. Entire paradise worlds were dedicated to a single art or titillating a single sense. On Vapor Prime, thespians of the highest caliber crafted grand, sweeping tragedies that lasted months in performance. On Ramza 3, master gastronomists served exclusive clientele with culinary creations that were each a unique masterpiece in of themselves. On Baron 2, musical prodigies created orchestral compositions that ever pushed towards harmonic perfection. The Slen did not create and perform their art for everyone. Their clientele had to have a refinement, an appreciation of high culture, but most of all, good taste. The humans were never invited. Not that they cared much, of course. The goal of the human entertainment industry was not to search for artistic perfection. No, they didn't even believe in artistic perfection. Their culture even had a whole thing going about this, resulting in them existing in what they called the state of postmodernity. No. The goal of their entertainment industry is to be as widely consumed as possible, 
which they did by inserting something that appealed to as many consumer demographics as possible. They called this the lowest common denominator, which could really mean anything. Insipid romance in a hollow film about war, gratuitous violence in a hollow film about love, the same pentatonic notes over the same three-chord natural major progression arranged differently enough to pass as different songs, or even unhealthy amounts of sodium and lipids in packaged foods. Of course, the lowest of the lowest common denominators was value for money. Everybody loved cheap things, and the humans obliged. The thinking was, why face a king when a whole galaxy of peasants threw their coins at your feet? This was why, when the time of human holofilm industry released Vindicators 26, End War Reloaded, Final Finale, Director's Cut, there was a larger number of Kentucky Fried Local Avian Analog that occupies poultry ecological niche outlets across the galaxy than there were mentions of the term meta-narrative in the derogatory context in scholarly critiques of Slen art theory written by angry human artists. The humans applied the same principles of niche marketing and the lowest common denominator to the transportation industry. The direct ships were faster and more reliable than the human counterparts, and their starliners contained luxuries, comfortable interiors, and an award-winning service staff. Contrasting with more functional flying metal and duct tape boxes that the humans employed. An easy choice for the financially responsible company. No employee would suffer the temptations of comfort or luxury when they could do just fine huddled up on the folding chair next to a crew of loud aggressive apes. An easy choice also for fiscally astute governors across the galaxy. They could waste precious public funding in maintaining a well-oiled logistic system or they could hand off contracts to the humans for minimal fee and non-minimal risk of asset loss. Humanity's transport industry soon dominated the niche of the all-expenses-paid business trips and bureaucratic supply chains. And of course, the low prices of their service meant that they were also the first choice for the burgeoning class of blue-collar workers, pre-FTL species and undergrad students with wanderlust as their social media bios. When the humans were done with the portfolio diversification, they were the fastest growing economic power amongst the younger civilizations. Their presence in any and one industry was minimal, dwarfed by the specialists. But overall, they turned the most annual profit in their class. They chose not to celebrate this landmark, though, and secretly expanded under the radar for decades. But by the end of the first century of their galactic presence, they were too big and prosperous to hide. The Tellerons finally took real notice of them. They saw humanity for what it was, an existential threat that could possibly topple galactic society on its head. They had to do something. Awakening long dormant organizations of intelligence and subterfuge, they set out to cripple the humans. Promises were bestowed on allies and trade partners. Lesser races were threatened. Propaganda was disseminated. What a costly blunder they committed. The Teleron were old and wise. They were present at the founding of the Union of Space-Bearing Civilizations. They had seeded countless words, many of which were now life-bearing. They had seen the rise and fall of countless civilizations. But they persevered. They persevered because unlike their rivals, they did not bank on brute might. Their strength was subtle, diplomatic. The right threat here, the right promise there, and the galaxy opened up for their taking. There were kings without the crowns that drew death to their wearers. But for all their wisdom, 
They never considered the possibility that the others could do what they did, but better. In their self-assured negligence, humanity had stolen soft power from under their noses. Not much had changed in the last hundred years. The Kruds were still the strongest military power. The Metic still dominated the tech industry. The Slen still dictated good taste, and the Nerek still owned the Galactic Trade Corridor. Except there was one key difference. The humans were everywhere. Due to their diverse industries, there was no system that didn't have at least a few of them, and due to their booming entertainment sector, there was no system that didn't know their culture. Humans became the one thing every species was familiar with. The Co. on the Sindel system could explore for the first time the alien tunnel streets of Bandoko at the other end of the galaxy, and still recognize a Chinese restaurant on the main tunnel street for what it was. A reptilian elitech might have nothing in common with the giant floating cephalopod that inhabited the gas giant of Sogosa 4, except both have most likely watched Vindicators 92, Rebirth Origins, The Soft Reboot, and shared strong opinions on it. This ubiquitousness of the humans gave them the opportunity to bombard the entire galaxy with whatever messaging, overt or subliminal, that they wanted. This was an opportunity they seized ceaselessly. Human holofilms and hollow games which saturated the market pushed narratives that positioned the humans as powerful, benevolent, and forever relevant. The effects of this were subtle at first. Bipedal species began dressing like humans. Juveniles and most species started adopting human vernacular while conversing in galactic common. In the next few decades, almost every culture hybridized to varying extents of human culture. Food, clothes, art, all reflected human influence. Everybody wanted to look like them, eat like them, live like them. By the end of the century, human opinion was universally taken to be the relevant opinion, if not necessarily always the correct one. Good opinions were formed in discourse with human ones and validated by human ones. The consequence of these circumstances was that when the Teleron started acting up against the humans, they were shocked to learn that in only a century the galaxy had forgotten that they held the true seat of power. The humans were at fault for this amnesia. They had seized the narrative and had constructed a hyper-real image of the Teleron as lazy, incompetent bureaucrats, and this image had consumed the past. Reality itself was but an image for the politicking Teleron. They were always what the narrative portrayed them to be. Now, they were irrelevant remnants of a dead past. They may have been masters of diplomacy in their time, but the humans had created and monopolized the galaxy's first culture industry. With the fall of Teleron, the humans in all but name took their place in the galactic ecosystem. The Crid, ancient rivals of the Teleron, did not see it that way. Their hated enemy was gone, and so was the delicate balance that they so zealously preserved. Crybor would taste Xeno's blood again. The Crid armies were the victors of a thousand wars, and had crushed a thousand worlds under their boots. Every sane faction in the galaxy recognized their military superiority, and world after world surrendered to minimize unnecessary bloodshed. The humans were not the same. To them what the Crid had was not strength, but branding. The biggest advantage they had was that everybody else thought they had the advantage, and branding wasn't a threat. It was an opportunity. If they bested the crud, they would essentially monopolize the conflict industry. No different 
than an economic or diplomatic takeover. When the humans refused to kneel, the crew declared war. It seemed like all was lost with a young civilization that almost won it all. They were outnumbered, outgunned, and outclassed by the ancient race bred solely for war. But humanity was undaunted. They had been in a position before. In fact, they'd been in this position so many times that they had a name for it. Asymmetrical warfare. To say the humans had odds against them would be to show fundamental ignorance of the species. They were faced with a superior foe, yes, but a foe they knew. Years of fighting at their side gave the humans insight into the crud. They were the most powerful, the most deadliest, yes. But they had always been, and it showed in how they fought. Powerful on the offensive, but no contingencies for the unforeseen. A weakness to be exploited. So when the crud fleet launched a massive blitzkrieg, headed straight for the Sol system, they were met with little resistance. Until they were deep in enemy territory, when their supply lines were cut. Packs of cloaked stealth destroyers attacking only when the odds were in their favor, and always avoiding ships that could properly counter their attacks. Attrition set in, and the fleet was picked off one by one. The next crit offensive was more wary, more strategic. A slow, uniform push, followed by a pincer movement that cut off the humans this time. The fleet spread out over seven systems, caught behind enemy lines, the ships were lost to superior crit firepower, but the worlds they left unprotected were another matter. The crit attempted to seize them via ground troops, presuming that their superior firepower would crush native population into submission. They were wrong. Civilians organized themselves into partisan militia, bolstering the ranks of the regular military. And then they all disappeared into jungles, mountains, deserts, and all manners of difficult terrain. From there, they launched sneak attack after sneak attack that completely negated chances for a stable crit presence on the surface. Attempts to flush out the guerrillas were ill-fated, as crit troops fell to traps, sickness, local fauna, and even more ambushes. Casualties rose so high that the crit command ordered their fleets to glass human worlds rather than to seize them. This was a disastrous mistake on their part. Five months after the first human world was glassed, 50 human ships decloaked in seven crit systems near the front line. All of the ships carried only a single high-yield orbital bombardment device with no shields, weapons, or point-defense devices, making it easier to infiltrate crit lines. The crit lost 15 worlds for 15 lost human ones. All 50 of the human ships were lost to enemy fire along with their crew. Two months after that, 50 more human ships showed up over 19 crit core worlds, this time disguised as Narak freighters. Or rather, they were actual Narak freighters the humans stole and retrofitted with fusion reactors that doubled up as high-yield WMDs. All 19 crit worlds were lost. The humans achieved decisive victory the following year. One could argue that it was the suicide attacks that did it, or the guerrilla warfare, but a much-neglected factor in the victory was the very same magic statement that facilitated the rise to economic dominance. We can do it cheaper. They knew from the get-go that it needed to be a war of attrition for them to have a chance, and they prepared accordingly. All of their ships were outclassed for a reason. Bigger, more advanced ships were costlier to build and maintain. Small destroyers with minimal shielding and a single spinal cannon. Each shipyard could build five of those a month. 
the same philosophy informed their ground troops. They had no energy-based small arms, relying on ballistic weapons, even when they had the technology to upgrade. Energy weapons were costlier to make and required more maintenance. They had no personal energy shields. Everything was traditional ceramic and graphene. Cheaper and easy to replace. Of course, all this cost-cutting meant tactical disadvantage, but they made up for it with logistics. In the long run, the resources they conserved allowed them to outlast the crids. End of story. 1990. Story number one. Hammer is a verb written by Dragonson04. The human mining colony in that asteroid fell easily. Almost too easily. Our overwhelming number of ships quickly destroyed their token security ships. Though it took more power than it was expected to bring those down. Humans certainly built ships to last. It wasn't enough, however. We took the colony, the mine, and all of the people inside of a day. The 2,050 humans who remained, including all mates and offspring of the miners, surrendered without much trouble. You now work for us, rather than your government or homeworld, or anyone you have previously sworn to work for. 100% of what you pull out of this rock belongs to the Grand Fleet. Why, ticks? You will be disarmed of your projectile weapons, no matter if they are a laser, plasma, or physical slug throwers, and... Uh, I know you humans are fond of blades, so they're all outlawed as well. All weapons are banned, starting immediately, I shouted. Knowing what I know of humans, I was surprised they agreed to those terms. We landed and, uh, with our new workers' aid, we set up a base of operations, a communication and command post to oversee the mining and processing of the titanium ore being pulled out. Luckily, the humans already had such a structure, and all we needed was to add our own communications equipment. It wasn't even two microcycles, what the humans referred to as an hour later, that the first incident occurred. Every single human witness to the event said that it was an accident, that the ITIC soldier shouldn't have been standing under the scaffolding while it had humans working on repairing some of the pipes behind a wall. That monkey wrench tragically fell and crushed the ITIC's head. The wrench in question was nearly as tall as a human. The size that told whatever pipe it was being used that I'm not asking nicely. From then on, it was constant bombardment of incident reports. Every last one, an accident. A ship exploded and caused a fire and took out our fuel storage and the 17 ships in the immediate area. Five more crushed heads or limbs and the various tools being accidentally dropped. These tools, ranging from ignited plasma cutters used to cut into rock to 20-pound sledgehammers, and all of that was before the workday ended on the first day of occupation. So I enacted a new policy. All tools that could possibly hurt anyone must be checked out and checked in with security officer. All tools must be properly secured in the work areas. All tools will be kept locked up in the non-work hours. Didn't even take a single microcycle before the next incident. An ITEX walking on a high walkway fell and was impaled four times on an exposed rebar. No one saw anything, or at least admitted to seeing anything. Then a damaged section of pipe, large enough to let a human crawl through, and with a fresh red-hot edge from being newly cut away, crushed three ITEX patrol groups. Enough of this. The leader of the humans will report this instant to the command center. 
I screamed through the intercom system. As if it had been waiting for that order, he stepped into the room before I'd put the mouthpiece down. Can I help you? He asked with a small smile. He was a large human, lean and muscled, as befits a miner. You could tell that he was spent his entire career breaking rocks. What is the meaning of this? We take this place and you surrender. We strip you of all weapons, both energy and physical. We try to get things set up and get uh, all moving. And now I'm down ten soldiers, eighteen ships, and our entire fuel supply. And it isn't even the second day of occupation. Am I in as a dangerous place, Commander? Accidents happen all the time, the human said, with a shrug of his shoulders. I've been absolutely flooded with accident reports. Based on what I've learned, this particular mine is one of the safest in the quadrant. No accident reports in the last five of your years. And the accidents that was reported six of your years ago was a slight abrasion to an extremity. Treated with a dab of rubbing alcohol in a small bandage. How is it that we are now the recipients of so many so quickly? You want to know something, Commander? The truth? The human asked. The truth would be most refreshing, human, I said. The truth is, we don't want you here. Earth doesn't want you here. It's our duty to sabotage you in any way that we can think of. Delay and distract you to the utmost. You'll either leave to preserve your fossils, or you'll be distracted for long enough for a rescue fleet from Earth to arrive. And such a fleet is already on its way. And yes, you did take out traditional weapons, so we have to go non-traditional. Maybe... A bit ancient in some ways. But what do you mean? I grew nervous as the human started to smile at me. There was something virile about that grin. You obviously don't know much about humans, so I'll let you in on a bit of a secret. The only way to fully disarm a human is to literally cut off all of our limbs. Because anything that comes to hand, anything that we can pick up, swing with enough force, anything that has a decent bit of weight to it, that we can throw as a weapon. If you take all of that away, we have our arms and legs that we can use as weapons. If you cut off our limbs, then uh, we'd be useless. The human pulled out a small hammer from a large pocket in his clothing. I have a personal saying, hammer is a verb, not a tool. The human swung the hammer at my cranium. I felt and heard a loud crack as the world began to fade into blackness. The human grabbed the mouthpiece, set to the intercom, and shouted, Operation Pointy Stick is a go! End of story. Story number two. Get one today. Written by Atreus Kantik. Are you tired of the cold loneliness of space? Get yourself a human. They are warm and hemothermic species. And they love cuddles. Humans are the latest addition to your uplifting exchange program. Incredibly curious. They will love travel in space with you. Please report to Annex 3, 4, and 5 for the necessary measures on how to handle said curiosity and prevent a human triggering a catastrophic event by touching what they should not. Humans are also smart and are very good learners. They can help you manning the ship after a few lessons, providing a nice support in their travel across the universe. Do not let a human pilot the ship unsupervised. Do not let the human handle any weaponry unsupervised. Do not let a human approach a main reactor unsupervised. Do not let a human convince you to do something that would improve the existing part of the ship with an argument that it would be cooler or more fun. 
Humans are omnivorous and can sustain themselves with a great variety of foods, saving you a great deal by giving him local food anywhere you go. Humans still require a complete diet with essential nutrients. Please report to Annex 6 with a complete list. If the list isn't met, the human might start eating other things on your ship or your cargo. Please report to Annex 7 224 for non-exhaustive list on things humans will find edible. Humans are social creatures and will develop a life-lasting bond with other beings, turning him into a great friend or even family member, if you have one member. Be aware that a human will develop a bond whether you want it or not, better with you than something else. Do not let a human develop a bond with the AI. Do not let a human develop a bond with the exotic creature that you come across on your journey. Please report to Annex 12 through 56 for a non-exhaustive list of things humans might try to bond with. Report to Annex 57 to know how to handle a situation where a human used the term murder kitten, danger noodle, or good boy. Humans can be fierce when it comes to protect their friends slash family. They'll give any pirates, reavers, and other raiders a great trouble finding their way inside your ship. No harm will come to you or your family while they stand. You might need to consult a PTSD psychiatrist after witnessing a human in battle. Please report to Annex 2 for the list of our specialists on the subject. Humans are the greatest companion this cold and empty universe has to offer. So do not waste another cycle. Come to Earth and get one today! Please report to Annex 1 before getting a human to learn about pancake and waffle. Those are not the same as the recipe in Annex 11. End of story. 1991. Detective work gets interesting with humans involved. Written by Grand Admiral 98. Detective Exaxa wandered around the darkened streets before the lampposts turned on. Apparently, the fugitive was somewhere in this lazy backwater planet, hidden from any prying eyes, except for all the eyes staring at her, of course. Offworlders tended to stand out in a world like this. Bloody fecking ho-ho on a kebab stick, she told herself. Of all the planets in the galaxy, this fecker had to choose the one run by criminals, smugglers, and wannabe revolutionaries. Moron probably thought that she was one of them. Maybe she just was trying to play smart. But places like these would chew her up and spit her out unless she knew exactly what she was doing. Probably, though, she picked the first unmarked planet and tried to escape to it and rented a starship because she forgot those things have tracking devices. The detective was told the planet to start investigating. But none of the background, someone wanted all of this or the hush-hush. They only gave Exaxa the vaguest descriptions of the fugitive. Only that a set of new implants had driven them insane. The only sure thing was that the person was greener than a baby on a roller coaster. The only reason that they were alive was because of the top of the line tech implanted in her. When she heard the girl's description, it sounded too good to be true. Ten times speed, strength, and seven times reflexes. Insane augments, far better than her own. Though strangely, they never really said the girl's species. Only a description, which sounded iffy to the detective. Bipedal, tan skin, vermilion, all that. No species name. That's usually what any organization start with. It's almost as if they didn't want her to find the girl. Whatever. She made sure she got paid a stupidly expensive rate by the hour. If they didn't send her more info, she could just sit here a week and think nothing more of it. Except for the fact that there was physically not enough money in the galaxy to get her to stay here for a single second longer than necessary. No. 
She'd find the girl, even if she had to kidnap every 1.7 meter sentient female on the entire damned planet. This planet itself was forgotten, but every nation which gave a damn, run by small town mobsters and dangerous and faraway place for a psycho like this girl to get herself to. But if she truly had all these implants, at least they would not go fully to waste. Planet Toral was better left forgotten and unseen. Her position, she would gladly have left it, except that her fecking fugitive decided to squat here. The sooner she could find her, the sooner she could get paid, the sooner she could go out. Win, win, win. This fecking hellhole could throw itself into the Eklecky Ark's anus for all she cared, and the girl could join it there, for making her aware of this place even existed. The problem, as always, was finding the fugitive. She ditched and rented a ship soon after landing, and then disappeared. There weren't too many options for her to hide in, but this was still the planet. No central information network or internet either, just as a crapple of anarchy ought to be. She hacked the orbital defense platforms to kill any ship getting away from this place that should keep the gangs and mafias occupied for a few days. Good thing her patrons basically gave her a blank check to get the material she needed for the stuff. She would have to find the girl the old-fashioned way. The problem? She didn't have a guide. She didn't have a contact here. Worse, she didn't have any contacts who had contacts here. Just goes to show how utterly bizarre this place was. It was like discovering a playboy who decided to become a priest. It just didn't happen. She had one main advantage. Apparently, one of the implants had a tracker, which would signal to her when she got within 500 meters of this fugitive. As the day turned to night, she decided that she would do a basic search pattern of the town, just in case a simple-minded idiot decided to hide out somewhere obvious. She had her sleep yonala fires on her, so she didn't need to find a place to rest for at least a week. Most likely, she'd know just enough to blindly believe that the mayor's office was built on top of the local strip club, though judging by the look of the place, that remained to be seen. But, to tell the truth, she wouldn't mind beating a few small-time criminals for fun. Huh. Maybe the relentless and amusing violence would make up for this whole mess in the first place. It wasn't long before she heard the noise behind her. About time. She turned around with an augmented speed, ready to lash out at what was probably a petty thief figuring an awful that was easy pickings. A couple of kids screamed and ran away. Just kids, probably planning to knife her and take whatever belongings she had. Fecking morons. She turned around and centimeters from her face was a dark figure stood. She immediately jumped back five meters with her augmented speed and drew her weapon, sweat dripping from her brow. No one. She scanned her surroundings. Nothing. Must have been a trick of the light. It was impossible that anyone could sneak up on her like that. She had 360 degree infrared x-ray ultra and infrasonic scanners. No one could simply just sneak up on her. She tentatively continued walking forwards, but with no other noise, she holstered her gun and started walking again. Hey, don't point that at me. I get nervous with guns and stuff. A voice from the shadows said. She froze again. What was he? A ghost? Ha! No. Obvious. A holographic emitter. Someone decided to spook her using one. That's why she didn't read anything until right before the voice. Now, all of the emissions existed, but those could all be faked. She turned around. The relatively short figure wore a fur-lined blue hoodie, which made it impossible to see his face, or even his species. Bipedal, though, so that was something. She almost rolled her eyes at her own jitteriness, but using holograms for a prank like this was new. 
would there be a couple of pickpockets around the corner waiting for their moment? But, she said impatiently, the figure laughed. <laughs> That's no way to talk to an old friend like me. It extended its hand. Exact, sir, stared at it. What was it doing? What, they don't know how to do a handshake in your world? Exact, sir, stared at the figure. You're a hologram. Don't even try to deny it. The figure stared at her and laughed. <laughs> ah, almost had ya, didn't I? Detective Exaxa, right? He retreated his hand, twirling it around like a moron and grinning like an idiot. White square teeth shining from the shadow. Well, uh, he shrugged and walked past her, both his hands tucked into his pockets. Detective Exaxa, right? She tried to say something, but the figure in the blue hoodie talked to her. I know about ya, and I know about your up. Yeah, we're hired to track that crazy lady who came here a couple of days ago, right? But I'm better at finding people than you. He turned towards her with a smile. What do you say? I take it to her. You bring her in, I take 25%. You take the rest, you get off this rock, and I get off on whatever. Deal? She couldn't quite believe the character of the sky. Let me see your face and know your name first. Exaxa folded her arms and leaned against the wall. As you wish, my lady. The figure pulled down his hoodie. Somehow without using his hands, his broad grin still plastered on his face. His face, almost white, a tuft of pure white hair, blue eyes, obviously human. What was the backwater race from the other end of the galaxy doing here? Call me Dante, you don't really want to know more, and I know all about you. Sir, let's get you to the girl before she decides to make the reactor go nuclear or some small thing like that, uh, capish? She rolled her eyes, then followed the primitive. They didn't walk for long before her questions started to pile up. Finally, she indulged herself. What in the hell is a human doing here? It's not like anyone else could do the job just as well. Dante kept grinning, then glanced at you. Like you, she huffed. No offense, ma'am, but some things require a, uh, special talons. He stared at her legs, which were indeed talons. She almost punched his stupid grin then and there. But she remembered that this was just a hologram, and he'd laugh at her for it. She'd rather open a strip club under the mayor's palace down this planet than be subjected to that. Anyways, I'm just here on some business which ya don't care about, with some people ya don't care about, and they want ya to get the lady. So, I want ya to get the lady. Simple, na? Exaxa looked back at him. What was the human even talking about now? Are we getting close, or are you only pretending not to waste my time? He kept talking through his grin. She'd be almost within range for you to detect her. He hesitated. Just so you know, I'm a guide. I'm not involved in your fights unless absolutely have to. So, you take care. No whoopsies. Nelson gets a bit serious. Babe's got some gear under her hood, if you know what I mean. If he was this useless, he should just wind the grin off his face. Blaster it on a billboard instead. Maybe then other people could be as miserable as she felt. He'd probably become a billionaire from everyone who would pay him to get to wipe it off the billboards. She looked back at her readings. 500 meters. There it was, finally. One simple job and she could finally get off the stupid rock. It didn't take long to get into the empty warehouse. The ugly, barely lit rectangular shape contrasted in front of the night sky. Exaxa entered without making any special effort to be discreet, confident that she was more than able to handle whatever was going to happen. Whimpering, or was it sobbing, came out from the far wall of the mostly empty warehouse. It only had a few steel pillars and some piles of boxes with white sheets over them. The sounds came from behind one of them. 
She smiled and looked up at her protocols again. Capture. Do not kill. Augmented and extremely dangerous. The detective smiled. This would be a good fight. She oriented herself towards the noise, her implants giving her an almost pinpoint location. She unholstered a gun and telepathically commanded it to load an electric net. She aimed above the box, then the net was guided towards its target, and would likely cause a surge throughout the implants, immobilizing it, smash and grab, like she liked it. She aimed and fired a single shot. The bullet arced over the boxes and fired thrusters and dove towards the target. The net expanded to cover the entire area in charged electrical wires. The figure, who had just been crouched and crying a few minutes before, instinctively jumped out of the boxes and stared at Itzaxa with crazed eyes. Crazed human eyes, to be exact. What was it with her and these humans today? The human let out a screech and sprinted towards her from 60 meters away. She was fast. Exaxa managed to shoot her in the head 12 times with her EMP bullets, but it obviously had some sort of surge protector or energy shield. Damn all of this and their mother. She jumped out of the human's path as she barreled past for, for another 20 meters as she broke through the brack steel wall, making a hole in it as if it were made of jello. Exaxa creaked her arms. That would have hurt. The human turned around, looking maniacally at the detective. She showed obvious signs of psychosis. Probably some runaway program that gradually took over parts of the psych. Always an issue with experimental tech. Likely her pain receptors were malfunctioning, hence why she refused to stay down after EMP shots. Exaxa took out another gun as she kept it holstered to her left side, one filled with lethal ammunition. It would take more than a non-lethal bullets to take this one down. The human stared at her, then jumped a dozen meters into the air towards her. Perfect. Exaxa calculated her trajectory and fired three high-explosive rounds towards her. Two shot wide as the human showed surprising maneuverability but air. But the third one hit true, sending her flying back towards the ceiling. In a fluid movement, the human oriented her legs towards the ceiling and bounced off on another vector with enough strength to cause the whole structure to buckle. Exaxa wouldn't let her escape. She jumped onto the crates and tracked the human and fired three homing Haichi rounds towards her. By some method, the human grabbed a pillar with a single arm and swung back towards her like an acrobat. The missiles exploding harmlessly behind her, and the human flying not so harmlessly towards the detective. Zaxa had the time to throw down one of the portable shields to bounce the human off, sending it flying up towards the crates again. She only had one more of those. She had to be careful. The human wasn't to be underestimated. If she was completely honest, this could end very badly for her. Feeling nervous for the first time in a long time, she could get into some very serious problems if that human caught her in a grappling range. The human's face changed from crazed to almost dead. At least she got the human to recognize her as enough of a danger to activate the combat mode of the implants, she thought. The human glanced towards her, then ran at her haphazardly, causing her targeting computer to go crazy. No matter. Exaxa jumped backwards onto a heap of crates, unloading two more nets in front of her to restrict the human's movement. The human somersaulted over them, just as expected. She unloaded a full clip of 12 HE missiles on her. The human evaded most of them, but two hit her left shoulder, causing visible damage. No, she had lured three missiles to her left side. She caught one of the missiles without it exploding and hurled it back towards Exaxa. The detective jumped out of the way of the explosives. She was blinded for 1.2 seconds, 
In that time, the Yoon bounced off the ground where Zaxo had stood and barreled towards her, her right fist connecting with the detective's stomach, barreling the detective four meters into the air with a definite internal bleeding. Before she could get back onto the ground, the human jumped after her and punched her again midair. This time, Exaxa had the presence to lock her arms together and deflect the blow. It sent her flying towards a pillar. That would at least make some distance between them. Exaxa's medical implants were quickly healing her injuries, but they needed a minute. She probably couldn't take too many or more of those punches. Just how many implants did the skill receive, dammit? The human girl sprinted towards her. No time to think. She lost her guns. Time to get serious. They weren't as effective anyway. Exaxa spread her arms and legs. She hated using this mode. But this moment called for it. Her shirt and trousers ripped. A meter long blades came out of her forearms. And jump springs came out of her talons. As the human barreled towards her again, Exaxa jumped away from the human. With ease using her newfound agility. And slicing open the human's back. Splashing red hot blood onto her blade. You should be careful. Though this mode had serious benefits to agility and attacking ability, it seriously weakened her arms and legs. One hit from the girl and there could break them off. The human chuckled as she stretched her arms around their full range of motion. Damn, that range of motion. Was a girl an acrobat or something? That cut barely seemed to face them. No, if Exaxa was going to get a bagged, she needed to go on the offensive. This time, the detective took off at a sprint towards the human, almost as fast as the human herself. The human glanced in surprise at how she saw her covering the dozen meters in less than two seconds. Exaxa swung her blades towards the girl. She arched herself backwards almost 90 degrees, then spun around and kicked the detective in the ribs, sending the detective flying towards the nearest wall. Two more ribs broken, but there was no time to heal this time. No time to activate a shield either. The girl had followed the detective and used a single kick to crush the detective's right arm. As Exaxa screamed in pain, the human grabbed the detective's left shin and almost completely crushed it. The detective was just barely able to find a round of armor-piercing ammo in a pocket. She grabbed it with her remaining hand and slammed it against the human's neck. The cell-propelled uranium shell piercing her skin and pushing the human into the ground. Exaxa could now barely walk. She put her weight onto her leg and jumped towards the exit. She'd only bounced twice when she saw the human get back up. What exactly was in that thing? Was it even biological at this point? Exaxa knew that she couldn't fight it. Her only chance was to run. But the human took a rock. A simple rock. And threw it straight at the detective's head. Sending her crashing towards the ground. The girl advanced towards her. Exaxa closed her eyes. Unless. Unless she thought of a way out. This would be it. A cold fear froze her spine as she looked at the human, slowly making her way towards her. The girl's own medical implants repairing her damage, whereas the detectives were still struggling with the first fractures. She tried to crawl away. The human threw a rod, impaling the detective through her stomach, where she laid. Now, she started to tremble in fear. Was this it? On a forgotten world in the middle of arse end of space. Vec! Yeah, a familiar voice resounded in her head. Looks like you need a bit of help. Dante, that damned fool. If you're going to do something to distract her, you better do it now, she screamed. Oh, I will, he said in a falsely jovial tone. But don't say I didn't warn you that this was a toughie. Idiot, of course he didn't. He appeared behind the human girl. Oi, you, he screamed out, his hand still in his hoodie's pockets. The girl looked around towards him. Why don't you pick on someone your own species? 
The girl lunged towards him with even greater speed than she fought Axaxa, covering the 60 meters in less than two seconds. He disappeared into thin air, as he always did, and reappeared 20 meters away. She jumped towards him again, but he didn't disappear this time. He somersaulted over her and landed perfectly on a single leg, facing the girl on some of the crates behind her, releasing a cloud of dust as he hazily kicked up some dust. In that moment, Xaxa froze with terror as she never felt before, not even a few moments ago. This was the moment when she realized he wasn't a hologram. Dante smiled, but this wasn't the innocent smile from before. This was a cruel smile, a manic smile. Gods, did every human have one of those smiles? The girl swung at him again, but he ducked under and over her several times, always faster. Not only just faster, he made the girl look like a 200-year-old trying to fight a professional soldier in their prime. He was making a game of it. Finally, he had enough and seemingly simply lifted a leg and sent the girl careening towards the pillar. He stretched his neck, then looked lazily back down at the girl. The girl looked angry, but this time she didn't charge him. She waited to see what he would do. He just laughed. Ha! You're finally afraid to fight someone with your own species now! The girl sniffed like an animal. For an instant, Dante looked sad. For what it's worth, I'm sorry. It shouldn't have happened. You don't deserve it. The girl sniffed at him again. His evil smile returned, and he just shrugged. But anyways, it's always fun dancing with you, even like this. His face grew pale and serious. His eyes lost all their color, color seemingly draining from all around him as he emitted darkness. But now it's time for you to come back home, Lara. She lunged at him, and he yet again teleported behind another pillar. The girl charged at him again, but his left hand was finally outside of his pocket, his palm open towards her. She ran towards him, and his left eye shone blue. Blue smoke erupting from it, his toothy smile plastered on his face as his breath also released the brilliant smoke. There was a flash of light from his palm. The girl was pulled upwards by an immense force, crushing her towards the ceiling, almost collapsing the whole warehouse. He pulled his fist down and seemingly flung her to the ground almost instantly. Dante made a single flick of his wrist. Glowing blue smoke broke out from around and formed a large metal chains around the girl's arms and legs, completely immobilizing her. He touched his hand to the ground and Xaxa saw the electricity arc through some unknown path through the ground and electrocuted the human. After a short scream, she fell unconscious. Just like that, Dante stared at Xaxa. With that one blue eye and that same toothy grin, the detective somehow felt more afraid now than when she thought that she was about to die. Sorry about that. Weren't exactly supposed to see that, but Lara here kind of went overboard. Ah, sir, so I'll say sorry for this too. He snapped his fingers, light emanating from them, and she felt herself hurled into a deep sleep. She woke up on a ship in space with a suitcase full of money. What just happened? Her ribs felt fine. She even looked at her arms. They were both just fine, though apparently her shirt did change. She got out of her seat and looked through the ship's logs. Everything from the last three days were deleted, all except for one document, a video. She opened it. Hey, yeah. The familiar voice of Dante spoke with his infamous grin and his hoodie. Well, I know you got back safe, for what it's worth. I'm sorry about the mess with Lara. There is always a much greater chance of psychosis when you downgrade a person's implants. You know how it is, exact aside. What was it with these humans? Did they all have implants like those? 
Those would have been top of the line, until she saw whatever Dante had, of course. Anyways, you know I can't say much, but you impressed me with your skills anyways, so paid you in full times two for your trouble. She glanced over at the suitcase. It was indeed very full. Anyways, I'd much appreciate it if you didn't mention that humans were involved in any of this. Otherwise, it's going to be your next of kin that are going to be enjoying the cash. She chuckled. Fecking Dante. Only he could make a threat seem both serious and half-hearted at the same time. So job's done. We've written your cover story to put in your resume if you really want to talk about it. Just as she was about to click off, he continued. By the way, I was actually impressed by your fight. Lara wasn't supposed to be able to use more than 10% of her cap. You stood up to her right up until she went to 30. So, if you like the cash in that suitcase, we can make use of a few detectives like you. Once you wake up, just send a 136.7 MHz microwave signal, and I'll know you'll be up for more. What do you see? Ready for round two, and a truckload more cash. Exaxa closed her eyes, grinning. Humans. They didn't want humans involved in this. The resources, the breadth of the operation, the hush-hush. This wasn't a random corp. This didn't feel like a corp, no. She was ready to bet her ship and that these guys were somehow involved in the human government. Somehow. And humans, that faraway backwater race on the other end of the galaxy, here, with powers beyond imagining. She actually laughed at the absurdity of it all. Yes, she almost died. But anyone had to admit, it was rather interesting. She pressed the button to admit the microwave frequency. An incoming transmission immediately played on her ship. Dante again. Glad you decided to stay, ready for a small trip to a regional media office run by a corrupt politician. She shrugged. It's more fun with you guys around anyways. But you're all paying me double. Dante looked off into the distance. 1.5 sounds good. Deal, Exaxa said. Where we're heading. End of story. 1992. Story number one. Humans are a tribal people. Written by Erebos Yeet. Humans are a tribal people. I knew this before I ever saw any. It had been drilled into our heads a countless amount of times. Be careful. Don't antagonize. Tribal races are dangerous. Pictures were shown of what humans had done to people who weren't part of their tribe. They had pillaged and murdered so many sentients. The part that shocked me the most was that most of their history, most of the humans weren't even part of their tribe. And thus, all centuries, the humans killed each other. They are a tribal people, and tribal people are dangerous. Naturally, the first time I saw a human, I was terrified. I was only 11 souls. The station I lived on had been attacked by the Antaraxi pirates. My parents had hidden me in a small cabinet and told me to keep quiet until they returned. They never did. I don't really remember my time in there. What I do remember is my hunger conquering my fear. I remember roaming through many empty halls. I remember the bodies. The longer I wandered, the more I started to hear. In the distance, there were gunshots and yelling. It was faint, but loud enough to scare me once again towards the cabinet. Before I could reach it, an explosion collapsed the hallway back there. Overcome by a primal fear, I collapsed in a corner and just closed my eyes. That's when I met him. A tribal human. I could barely see him in the armor he was wearing. Panicked, I started screaming and pushing myself into the corner, as if I'd tried hard enough. 
I would face Thrunt. The human, however, just stood there for a while, seemingly puzzled. Slowly, speaking in hushed voice, he made himself smaller and approached me. He carefully scratched the fur behind my ears. I never got why, until I saw a human cuddling a cat. I can see why I made him think of one. Eventually, I stopped screaming. Seemingly not satisfied with the bare minimum, the human, carefully as possible, opened a pocket and gave me the little locket that was inside. It was made out of warm silver. He pushed it into my hand, looked into my eyes, and spoke with a beautifully deep voice. I didn't understand a word of it, but it felt reassuring enough to not protest when he carried me in his arms and started to slowly run towards the docking bay. He never made it there. A few hallways away, a group of pirates noticed us and followed in pursuit. Sprinting as fast as he could, we turned into the last hallway. At the end, other humans started running towards us to help. It wouldn't be enough. The hallway was too long. The pirates were too close. The human set me down on the ground and beckoned me to run. He himself grabbed his gun and turned back. I never saw him again. It took me a very long time to open the locket and took me even longer to understand what was inside. There was a picture of a younger man and a small note. It said, Love you, Henry. It was that man that eventually found me down on earth. It was that man that raised me to be the man I am today. And he never asked for that lock back. Not once. It's true what they taught me. Humans are a tribal people. And I am a part of that tribe. End of story. Story number two. Temper Temper. Written by Foxcorp. New Elan had been a stubborn thorn in the galaxy's side for far too long. For over 200 years, the planet exported nothing but terrorism and instability. In 3489 AD, the human contingent of Galfleet was dispatched to deal with the insurrectionist cells on the planet's surface, once and for all. The Nulians, the species that originated on Olan and had later colonized New Olan, had finally caved to galactic pressure and allowed peacekeepers to stabilize the region. The Nulians' own strike groups were often corrupt, leading to orbital bombardment to often miss the central hubs of insurgent activity. The Nulians and the rest of the galaxy knew the humans could get the job done and were counting on an efficient and spectacular end to the stain on the galaxy at large. Contrary to what the Nulians had feared, humanity was taking great care to not inflict damage to civilian areas. This care and conservative application of orbital firepower are what led to the infamous events of March 25th. 3489 to occur, mostly without a hitch. There was one hitch, however, that went down in galactic history, not for its failure, but for its overwhelming impact on one particular area's geography. While the airborne insertions spearheaded by the illustrious Combined Special Operations Unit performed surgical strikes on insurgent cells within urban areas, a 250-strong tactical operations group bombarded less crowded areas of terrorists concentrating from orbit. The capital ship within this group, the UNE Wisconsin, was busy targeting hotbeds across the entire continent of Rylas when a lone shot from a planetary defense cannon slammed into one of its secondary batteries. The shot 
was able to puncture the ship's shields and went through seven inches of armor plating. Only the three gunners in the second battery were injured, suffering from quite extreme tinnitus for roughly two days. The secondary battery itself was not affected. Captain Aaron, commander of the UNE Wisconsin, was very affected. He and everyone else on the ship could only be described as absolutely unhinged by the reporter on board the ship at the time, and the crew promptly moved to file a complaint with the operator of the planetary defense cannon. More, 24 of Wisconsin's main batteries targeted the exact coordinates of the insolent cannon at once and fired with extreme prejudice. Even the secondary batteries stopped targeting their assigned regions and opened up on the general area where the cannon once stood to join in on the fun. Even the battery hit by the cannon opened up, actually shooting for at least 15 minutes longer than everyone else because the gunners couldn't hear the order to cease fire until the runner was able to tell them in person. After a roughly 20-minute concussive therapy session, the shooting from the UNE Wisconsin ceased. The UNE bat out of hell. One of Wisconsin's escorts sent only two words to the raging giant in response. Temper, temper. Word of incident spread fast across the region, and soon after, the entire galaxy. The response of the UNE Wisconsin had gone down into legend, but the actions of the defense cannon puzzled many until the crew of investigators reached the two-mile-deep, five-mile-wide crater where said cannon once stood. Roughly two millimeters of torn fabric were found a mile away from the crater's edge. After substantial forensic analysis, they were found to be 100% matched to one of the many armbands worn by insurgent forces. The current theory is that the defense cannon operator was bribed to fire upon human forces in orbit by a local insurgent cell. Logs from that day were also revealed that a dozen of other defense cannons had also received monetary transactions from shady sources. But the operators of these cannons had little more common sense and didn't fire on any human ships when push came to shove. 274 years later, and the human intervention is still recognized as a total success. It left New Orlan as one of the most stable planets within the local area. And the tale of humanity's precision, care, and overwhelming firepower lives on through a great multitude of lakes and statues. None more impressive than the aptly named Lake Wisconsin itself. End of story. Story number three. Business dealings with humans, written by Hitchingpotamus. Orcanard sighed as he looked at the flyer. More junk mail, like he didn't have enough to do. Still, might be worth a laugh to read it before tossing it out. Greetings, valued colleague. What if I told you the riches the humans have offered for useless territory were in fact only a fraction of what they could pay? What if I told you they can and will pay more? With this one secret, developed from a revolutionary findings of noted Aquitanian University xenobiologist Flupavu, learn how to get the most out of your dealings with these strange beings. Slots will fill up fast, so reserve your spot now. At only 565 Zunoi per individual, you can't afford to pass it up. Orkinet sighed. Bessela, get in here. His secretary squirmed as she entered the office, dropping so low he thought she might be going to try and dig through the floor. What is it? She looked at the flyer. He left floating between them. Sir, I just know you have the meeting with the human representative next month and... They're all the same, he intoned with force. Some crazy theory or another as to why humans always want the places where nothing can live. The big rocks. What's this idiot's idea? 
He was so agitated that he was swimming in circles at this point. She spat off a chuff nervously and floated between them. I know this sounds odd, but hear him out. He says the humans evolved on a big rock, that their planet has more of them than most, and uh, they live in them, above the planet. She couldn't be serious. How would they breathe then? And there is no water up there to circulate through gills. Come on, Bacilla, you're smarter than this. The theory is that they have an organ called uh, lungs, and that they can take oxygen out of gas, she said, haltingly. All a Kernard could do was stare at her. Several seconds passed in silence, when he began shaking with amusement. Lungs! he spat out. Well, that would be good for a laugh after all. All right, we're done. Just don't bring me any more of this craziness. End of story. 1993. Check Engine. Written by Calamity Comet. Hunter and Prey. There was never any question which one we were. Our ship darted through this distant arm of the galaxy, always barely one step ahead of our pursuers. The captain consulted the star charts, always keeping our path true. The weapons officers primed their stations, always prepared for a fight with our adversary. I cleaned the kitchens, polished the bulkheads, tightened bolts. Most of all, I tended to the warp drive, more ancient than most of the ships. Engineering was not a high prestige posting. That said, no one amongst the crew had ever talked down to me an earshot of the captain. The ship was a temple, and keeping it running was a worship. Outside Gamma Zebulon, we caught a bad signal. All systems fried. Some midshipmen had downloaded a bad file. We struggled and floundered in orbit of some cyan ocean world. Out here, in the boonies, we were easy prey, and our adversary found us still under sublight impulse. Weapons went crazy, preparing for the showdown. The captain was unfazed. She asked me if we could force the drive. I added engineering tuner carefully, so I said yes, but only this one time. We bolted out of that system, our pursuer hot on our tentacles. The warp drive groaned, but we caught the right quantum foam tangents and we made it out. Mostly okay. We arrived weeks later in Procyon Q5, venting something nasty from tertiary holding tank. Helium-3 or maybe Xenon. It was unclear. To clear it up, we needed a spacewalk. Never fun under stress. Of course I led it. Nothing but gangly tentacles. I didn't fit the spacesuit well, but it was all we had. The captain was my double. She handed me a wrench and I tightened. She handed me a battery and I installed. And the sun shone brightly on the desert world beneath the current orbit. Uncharted. You ever wonder who made our ship? Maybe they're down there. She might as well have been screaming into space. Engineering had long drunken debates, but of course, the creators of our ships were a mystery. I played it straight. They existed between 740 million and 1.3 billion years ago. They are no longer active on the galactic stage. Probably they don't exist anymore. Even when our race bought this ship, it was hand-me-down. They were older than the old before we were us. The captain stared off into space. She said nothing more. We installed the new tank and made it to exit system. It turned out it was Xenon. Out in the quantum foam between systems, something broke. The computer said, transmission. That wasn't something that made sense. Our press gang opened the warp drive in transit. Always dangerous. And of course, it exploded. I was right there with them when it did. Bright flash, metallic clang. Engineers hit the deck. I ran through the roll call. Five injuries. No deaths. The warp drive was somehow still running, basically impossibly reliable. 
I approached the now open access panel and noticed there was a physical mechanical gears running and the state changes between warped states. Ancient tech, I said. Hand me a wrench. The uninjured engineers around me groaned. We bolted into the slaughter motor and started physically, rotating the bearing in place in like some kind of piston engine. Impossibly simple. The oldest of fail-safes. We made it out of the warp with no further injuries. I couldn't get the fifth gear to seat correctly, so I filed down the teeth and installed a bypass. Four gears for a warp drive. Who knew? It might hold. Who knew warp drives had gears at all? In the Z9 system, we nearly met our end. We came out of warp five standard lengths from a roiling blue supergiant. And there were our sensors were blinded. Our opponent let loose a probability array. It had either too long or too short. It either missed us by too much or not enough. The ship was either slightly safe or slightly unsafe. Weapons went crazy. We fired everything. Kinetics, lasers, coherent particles. None of it got within one likely standard unit. Not a single moon arrived at a destination. Our adversary was too quick, too prepared. Z9 was too bright. The captain looked at me halfway through the barrage. Get us out! The warp drive screamed. It banged, it knocked, it made a dun-dun-dun sound that sounded really bad. Then suddenly, where Z9 was, there was black. Then every coolant pipe burst. Then all the power died. Then all emergency lights went red, then blue, then brighter danger green. The computer whined. It informed us we required repair. We were apparently still within warranty. Everyone laughed. The funeral laugh. It was either six hours or 49 days still slightly under the effects of the probability array. It was impossible to know which. Of course, it was probably a fixed finite value between those two values, as my second command stated. Probably only 48 days. That felt correct. We appeared later in the Krelma system. All reserves expended. The warp drive nearly shot. Our pursuer certainly still in pursuit. The captain looked at me. She raised an eye tendril. I sighed. We can't survive that again, she nodded. Put your estates in order. The crew grew glum. The captain was blunt. Hard to blame her. The warp drive was an odd, despicable thing. Mostly mechanical. Old. Super efficient, yet like a billion years old. Better than anything we could make. Best of what we could buy. A large symbol. Two crossed ovals in an oval. They stared at me. Who made you? I said. The drive said nothing. Then slipped a gear, and the whole ship shuddered. Sorry. Sorry. I said. I tried to quiet it, and in between tightening bolts and cards slipped out. The AI computer helpfully translated the parts it understood. We were overdue for a scheduled maintenance inspection. I laughed until I cried. In 40 Alpha, we met our match, a brilliant, gleaming cruiser, our adversary from the sworn enemy. It broadcast an open channel. Hello, goodbye. Simply witty, the crew shook in fear, and the captain said simply, I wish I could come up with crap like that. He calmed us a little. Forty Alpha was a little red dwarf, hardly bright enough to read a book by. The enemy cruiser gleamed brighter. We felt the story was over. But even then the captain yelled stations. Stations! Weapons straightened out their tentacles and got ready for the last glorious death ride. I put a hand on the warp drive. One more. It clunked and clunked and then suddenly it went whirr. The captain looked at me. My expression was dead. We require scheduled maintenance. Elevate! Charge up! Steady! Get ready! The captain didn't falter. 
We let loose everything left. It all ran off the cruiser's shields like rain off a hot forge. He returned fire, a paltry display of its least impressive weapons, and at that moment, everything on our ship became on fire. Nearly dead, in pain, I dragged myself across the command room. Anywhere, I said to the nav computer. The warp drive yelled. It writhed. A system appeared. I hit yes. So, said the computer. The warp drive obliged, as if commanded by an old friend or lover. The captain was wounded. Weapons was gone. Fire and blue-green blood. The adversary prepared another round. And then we were deep in the quantum phone, a million times the speed of light. Sol was a standard sequence star. It was on its way out, almost a red giant. Only a few billion years left till then. No planets surrounded it. Only a ghostly shell of habitats and shards. A trillion, trillion of them. The true Dyson swarm, to use the ancient word for such a fable object. Immediately all the censors said, politely but firmly, that we were not allowed to be here. This was the final resting place of an ancient precursor race. Leave! said the censors in unison. Leave, 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 leave! The adversary had followed us here, but even here they looked in awe, powerless. The captain shook her eye stalks. It's hopeless. We must leave. Any fight is more hopeful than one with these elders. I was about to agree, but a light on the dash from the warp drive came up. Orange. Vaguely mechanical shape. We required maintenance. The elders, the fellow race long since retired from the galactic stage, hiding in their Dyson swamp, they spoke again. Leave! You have no business here. The captain gestured. Navigation began to issue the order. The enemy cruiser sat deadly, waiting. No! I yelled. I cast my voice to the crew, but also over the waves across the space to the elders. Our warp drive requires maintenance. The captain stared. The crew gaped. The cruiser backed up a single standard unit. It was well known in galactic etiquette that you never crossed an elder race, not in their home. What? said the elders. Who are you to demand assistance? No shields could keep out their broadcast, sent at full volume. Everyone winced. Everyone but me, head of engineering. I made my voice as steady as I could. Our warp drive is a Toyota GR1109-F. The previous owners purchased an extended warranty. We are afforded an unlimited warranty in perpetuity. We are severely overdue for a scheduled maintenance inspection. We request a mechanic. The elders didn't speak for a full standard minute. Even the captain put her head in her tentacles and breathed slowly. Finally, the elders spoke. These terms are still valid. Prepare for assistance. And the cruiser left us. Outmatched. Defeated. Our antagonist done for now. The elders let us within the Dyson Swarm, and the warp drive at that exact moment died completely, basically exploded. We struggled to keep the ship running until the elders, the creators of our ship, could fix it. Which, of course, they did. Free of charge. End of story. 1994. Christmas One-Shot, Winter's Gifting, written by Random3x. December 25th, Year 024, Angel's Descent. The class sat in the dorm's communal area, enjoying the early morning of winter gifting. The winter solstice festival, where they exchanged gifts and celebrate a year gone by. As they animatedly discussed the year that had gone by, they couldn't help but touch on the mad events they had gone through. Everything, from the raid on their classroom, eating the combinal of the theocracy, and even the interclass war. They collectively sighed in relief, 
having survived the year and raised a glass of grape juice in toast as a few of their number felt the presence approaching the dorm building itself. Stepping into the main hall was Annex, accompanied by Frecky, who had grown to the size of a full-grown wolf in the past year. Riding on her back, as had become the norm, was Anison, who was now looking around the dorm in wonder. Spotting the class where they were sitting, Annex waved to them as he approached, all while Frecky and Anison began galloping around the dorm building. Hey kids, happy winter's gifting, Alex said with a cheery wave. You too, sir, Maxwell replied. You here to wish us a happy winter's gifting, Tasha asked. Kind of. Allie wanted to speak with the other kindergartners. About what, if I may ask, sir? Maxwell asked. Well, we're having a winter's gifting party, Alex explained as he looked over his shoulder to see the trio of kids running alongside Frecky. Looks like they almost found everyone. He muttered with a warm grin before turning back to the class. So kids, uh, you wanna join? At your winter's gifting party? Daisy asked. Aren't they meant to be family and close friends? Daisy, surely by now you would know I consider you kids like family. I just felt like you kids are all far from home. You might want to spend your winter's gifting with your family away from family. Sir, I'd be happy to join you. Klein replied as he rose up and stood next to Alex. Did I forget to mention B will be there? Her family set off on a demon hunt, so she's crashing at our place till the new year. At this added information, Gunther rose without a moment's hesitation, only pausing once to grab a small amount of mistletoe. I'm not sure, but since the cardinal it left, my father has told me not to make things worse by being near your outside lessons. Maxwell, that wasn't your fault. He had it coming, Alex replied clenching his fist tightly. Maxwell, though, still looked hesitant to join his teacher. Tasha, you want to join? Alyssa will be there, Alex asked, trying to tempt the elf. I've overcome these issues, sir, but I will join if at least to meet your baby, Tasha replied, rising up and joining the assembled group. What about you, Daisy? The little ones have been missing you. Daisy was still visibly hesitating, despite his urging. Think of it like this, if you are still hesitating. You can be your little brother's chaperone. Family should be together, especially after all that's happened to yours. Daisy's lower lip trembled a little at memory, only for her to harden her resolve and realize wallowing in misery won't get her anywhere. Rising up, she joined the rest of the class, leaving Maxwell the only holdout. Maxwell, you sure I can't convince you to come? Alex asked one final time. Sorry, sir. I will abide by my house arrest. I won't leave on my own volition, Maxwell replied. Okay, gotcha, Alex replied with a salute as he marched to Gunther and Tasha. Uh, can one of you kids kidnap him for me? He can't help it if one of the physically strongest students, alongside the most physically imposing student, kidnaps him. Especially, it was under the orders of the Lord Defender of the Western Arm, Alex said with a mischievous grin. Wait, Maxwell tried to protest, retreating from the assembled class, only to be swept off his feet and carried in a princess carry by Tasha. Don't worry, I got you. You won't get away from me this time, Tasha said with a teasing smile. With him picked up, the class turned to step out, only to be met by the exhausted-looking Frecky, being chased by a swarm of children. Is that Icarus? Daisy asked, observing some of the children who were new arrivals from the start of next year. Yeah, remember he was still starting this year coming. He probably is also already making friends, Alex said with a grin as he stepped between the swarm of kids and glared at them. Okay, kids, that's enough. You are scaring Fracky with your chasing. 
Nicarus, Olivia, Jacob, Cessius, Lucas, and Zapparus. Front and center. And Alex's drill sergeant voice, the kids all scattered, minus the names he'd called. Leaning down so that he was in their height, he held a hand up to his mouth to whisper something to them. Whatever it was, he said to them, they all cheered and began following Frecky out in the calm pace as Alison herself decided to dismount, looking rather pale from motion sickness. Making their way across the campus to the tower at the far end of the school that overlooked the Bay of Herminus, this, they all knew, was Alex's private residence on the school grounds, the place where he and his wife Alyssa lived. Despite the class's knowledge, this was where he lived, the tower was more urban legend amongst the rest of the student body. Countless rumors of mages who approached it disappearing, or rumors of mad mage performing insane experiments were abound. The class knew that only two of these were accurate. Walking up to the door, Alex knocked and announced his arrival. I'm home! Alex shouted as he opened the door, only for a mechanical boot to swing down from above the doorframe and almost hit him in the stomach, only for him to move back the last second. You! I have kids with me! Oh, damn! You should have opened with that! You shouted back. Can, uh... Can you two not be so loud you'll wake? Alyssa began, before letting out a massive yawn. Just looking at her, they all could see dark bags under her eyes, no doubt still recovering from the recently given birth. No, please, Lizzie. We can have the whole Fifth Fleet march through here and not cause a stir in the nursery, Mimi replied to the exhausted elf while chuckling. I don't mean for the baby. Alyssa began before lowering her head and letting out a quiet buzzing. Did, uh, did she fall asleep standing up? Daisy asked with a curious tilt to her head. Yeah, um, a weird trick she learned when she was a kid, Alex explained as he gestured to open the hall for the kids to make themselves at home. So, uh, those are your friends, Mimi asked Allison, who was closely trailed by the rest of the kindergarten class. Allison, though, just nodded in response. Which one of you is Zapparis? Zapparis raised her hand nervously at the unintended pressure Mimi was releasing. Come here, Mimi firmly asked, leaving no room for denial. Zapparis approached Mimi, looking nervous, before she took over her expression and Mimi embraced her in a big hug. Thank you for rescuing my little girl earlier this year. If it weren't for you, Ali might have gotten hurt, Mimi said as she released the stunned Zapparis. Zappy, he's my best friend, Mum, Allison said in a whisper, trying to free her friend from her mother's tight grasp. I got gifts for you, kids, Mimi said with a bright smile as she spun around in her seat and brought out a box. Opening the box, she began taking out weapons and handling them to the kids. Cassius, I got you a spear, she said, handing the weapon to the boy. You, Zapparis, you got a crossbow. Perfect weapon for someone who likes the ceiling, she said, handing the girl the weapon. Olivia, I got you a real princess's weapon, Mimi said as she reached into the box and took out a battle axe, bigger than she was. The princess's weapon, Olivia asked as she nearly buckled under the weight of the weapon. Yes, Princess Alyssa over there practiced with them all the time before she got the artifact-grade weapon for my baby brother, Mimi replied with a grin. Lucas, I asked your mum, Rosie, what to get you. And she suggested this, Mimi said, as she took out a flail from the box. Be careful swinging that around. Jacob, for you I got this, Mimi said, as she sank her arm far deeper into the box than should have been possible. Withdrawing her hand, she had a small dagger. Jacob, though, looked visibly disappointed at the gift, before forcing on a polite smile. This here is a toy Alex there made for me when I was about 13, Mimi explained, as she held out the knife to Jacob handle out. This one, you can channel mana into the stones to shoot a pre-inscribed spell. They won't be powerful, 
but I read in one of Ali's letters that you struggle with projection magic. I was the same way. So don't worry if you focus on enhancing magic, Mimi said as she closed his hand around the weapon. Excuse me, but is it wise to give kids weapons? Daisy asked, looking at her brother worried. It should be fine. They are going to start real combat training with the elementary school of the academy starting next year, Mimi reassured her. So they would have needed weapons eventually. In this case, we got it sorted before any other kids. Now for all of you, Ali. Mimi reached deep into the box, and when she withdrew her hand, there was only a book in it. I know you are more like your uncle than a shooting magician, so I got you a book of the Octogram Archives full of spells for you to learn, Mimi explained, handing the book to her daughter. Allison beamed with a big grin and embraced her mother gratefully for the gift. Yo, there you are, you big lug, Bee shouted as she walked out in one of you's battle suits. Bee, why are you in one of those suits? Tasha asked. Shu said that it would help me get intimate, Bee replied as she stepped up to Gunther and let the suit's handle hold up a bundle of mistletoe above their head. I thought the same thing, Gunther replied as he held out his own bundle. The pair blushed as they shared a kiss while the kindergartners all made grossed-out noises. Find a seat, guys. Alyssa prepared an epic meal for us, Alex said, gesturing to a table in the side room. I see how it is. You make your wife cook despite only just giving birth? Daisy asked while trying to wrestle a knife from Jacob's hand. No, no, kids. Alex is genuinely the worst cook alive. He has an imperial seal preventing him from cooking. You serious? B asked, stifling a giggle. Last time he tried to cook, he was arrested under suspicion of producing a chemical weapon. You answered. The glass looked at Alex for confirmation, only to see him avoid eye contact. Arrest is a strong word. It was I was questioned by the state security bureau. I, uh, I wasn't arrested. Well, had the same thing happened to me as well, Mimi added, looking at Alex with a grin. Yeah, we're both atrocious at cooking, though we did build up a decent toxin resistance by the time we joined the elementals. You guys go get settled. I'll go get her to bed, Alex said, as he gently picked Alyssa up and carried her upstairs. A few minutes passed where the class could hear the distinctive cries of a baby on the floor above, only for a sweet melodic music to begin to play. The class recognized it as the Rezoic's Palkwood Cloud music playing. Yo, kids, nice to see ya. Hadeen Boone from entered with a big platter of food. Rosie's upstairs helping out, so she'll be down in a few minutes. Where is Alex? Hadeen asked, looking around. Alyssa fell asleep standing up, so he's putting her to bed, Maxwell explained. Ah, fair enough. He'll probably get Rosie down, so... <clears throat> Hadeen began before being hug-tackled by Lucas. Hey, son, Hadeen said as he put the platter down on the table and began ruffling Lucas's hair. A few minutes passed as Hedin, with the help of Bee in a suit, carried out the rest of the winter's gifting feast. When it was all out, Alex and Rosaic stepped into the dining room in a heated debate. I don't understand why you named your firstborn after little you. Rosie, I've explained this multiple times already. We played around with blood contracts. Me and Alyssa were compelled. Alex replied with an exhausted sigh. Honey... You sigh like that, and you'll let all the happiness out, Rosaic warned, as she licked her thumb and smudged it against his cheek to clear the smudge of something. How can I lose any happiness? I got my family all under one roof for winter's gifting, Alex refuted, as he lifted a wine glass to toast. Here's to a greater year without woes and worries. Everyone sat at the table, clicked their glasses in response. Now guys, let's dig in. My family have big rule when it comes to winter's gifting. And as I consider you lot family, I expect you to follow. Alex announced as he looked at the assembled faces. 
Eat till you're full, drink till you're in a haze, and welcome tomorrow with a smile. Happy winter's gifting. End of story. 1995. About Human Spirit and Rage, written by Rugi 2001. The War Council observed in religious silence, while the Head Council searched on their data pod. And long last, they seemed to find whatever they were searching for, and started messing with the air screen in order to project it on the Council Room's projectors. With a slight grunt of satisfaction, the Head Council clicked the last button and relaxed themselves. The connection started. Audio visual meeting, date 16.342-33-290. Recorder, Head Squadron Commander Representative. <laughs> initializing connection. The video started and a being. <laughs> with all probability, massive even for the standards of their species, just stared silently at the camera for a moment. Maybe they hadn't been certain whether or not the datapad had already started recording. The council watched in silence for some months. Then the moments became seconds, then dozens of seconds. Right when the council members were about to speak, the being said, <clears throat> Uh, here is Squadron Commander, Representative of the 7th Legion, Human War Dispatch of the Astraluminal 7. Once the due presentation had been done, Head Squadron Commander, Representative seemed to fall again into his previous mental state. They almost seemed catatonic. Are they in their right state of mind? Asked one of the council members. A nod from the head council silenced any further reserve. Honored members of the high council, I present important information on human to you all, in hope that your thinking to be clearer and your decisions wiser. At last they didn't forget the right etiquette, even in their dubious mental state, thought everyone in the room. Yesterday, we drove the last attack on the human colony Astraluminal 7. New Rome, obviously. They paused, as if considering whether or not to use the word obviously. Obviously, we won. And yet... They looked blankly in the camera for a second. The council will have to excuse me, as I am conscious of my impoliteness. But I'll have to drop the formal speech here. They grabbed a mug of Et with their lower left arm and sipped a short, shallow mouthful. The message I am, uh, the thing I, uh, it's hard. They took another sip. I'm hopeful all honored council members will be familiar with the humans, or at least their anatomy. Another long silence. They are weak. They are one third of us. They are frail, slow, clumsy, little, and so prone to sickness. It's harder to find someone without disease rather than the other way around. Made a mocking sound with its jaw pincers. A mocking sound all too bitter to be sincere. If their males lift more than 500 kilos, they are considered exceptional. Our children lift those weights in order to start training. If their runners run at 35 kilometers an hour, they are considered incredibly fast. Our runners can touch the 100 kilometer an hour mark. If they fall from 20 meters or so, they are most likely to die. And even if they survive, they break their frail bodies. If you throw a rock at them, they bleed. Feed them poison and they die. I could go on. But I hope the honored council members get my point. Another long sip and shoot. They don't have any armor, any claws, nor fangs, nor tusks, or poisonous talents. They don't even have wings to flee. Watch their own physique. 
wondering for the first time in their life what would they be without all their natural weapons. They were something so natural to but they wouldn't be without them. They have an incredible stamina. I'll give them that. I saw humans run for hours and hours without stopping. Or humans. They stopped for a moment, building again into that catatonic silence. Or humans surviving fatal damage to vital organs. They are endurance incarnate. Another long silence. I hope the council won't misinterpret my words. Shoot them and they die, cut them, poison them, break them, starve them and they die. Just sometimes, when you least expect it, they survive long enough to amaze you. The council was now starting to wonder what the whole video conference was about, and if it was the case for to be suspended from their role until further notice. It was only because of the head council still watching in silence that no one uttered a single word. When you least expect it, they chuckled, looking at the empty mug. Avoid chuckle. Yesterday we launched a final attack, and their colony fell. When my squadron engaged, it was the last of several battles. The humans are weak, but even then, their weapons can kill us. Hardly. But the humans are fast to learn, and even faster to better themselves. The first time I fought with them, it was a massacre. Yesterday, it was a battle. Another long silence ensued in which stared silent at his own desk, wondering who knows what's in their mind. When they informed me about the humans, I laughed. I mean, I did internally. Come on! The council really expects something like, uh, like them to be a menace. To even be a challenger. To be anything else than dead meat, I thought. While studying them, one heart, one spinal cord, four limbs, a hundred kilos at most. No natural armor and everything else. How could they survive on their own planet, let alone dominate it? I thought it was a joke that they could travel the stars. They lowered their eyes. And yet, here they are, fighting armies bigger than theirs, composed of soldiers deadlier than theirs. And yet, they do not falter. They die in the tens of thousands and do not falter. It's... it was incredible. The first time I saw it. Now, somehow some of the council members were silent because they were listening, and not because the head council was silent. Some of them could see there was something going on behind Marshall's eyes. Something quite difficult to pinpoint, and just as much disturbing. I remember clearly our fourth fight, the first battle they won. In only a month or so, they fought from a massacred praise to actual combatants. To our shame they won! I will never forget that date, for two reasons. The first being they won. The second... They grabbed another mug of et and sipped again, holding it with both their lower arms. The second reason being I lost my brood sibling that day. To a female human, in the human race, on the council members, contrary to our own, it's the female, the small one between the sexes, and the male is the battle-oriented one. The fact shocked me. The female on the battlefield... After that, I started investigating the humans, not only their military and their strategies, but also their culture. They sipped. What I discovered shocked me even more. They have no racial subdivision, no social hierarchy established since birth. Every female is just as good to lay eggs and raise children, and every male is just as good to fight and go to war as anyone else. Even the females go to war, apparently. A dry laugh shook their broad, superior shoulders. 
They are not conditioned by their genetics. They can replace anyone with anyone. Any one of them can be a soldier, and then go on to be a teacher and a leader, and a laborer and so on, contrary to us. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't lay any eggs, assuming I were to be a female. And even if a razor were to find himself in a dire situation without a soldier protecting him, he wouldn't be anything but a dead body walking. Heck, our soldiers are even asexual in order to ensure better fighting. Our gender is war! <laughs> laughed at his own joke. A joke all too common between the soldier cast. And yet that human, that weak female, killed my brood sibling. When we retrieved the body, can any of the Honor Council members guess how many humans accomplished such a feat? For your information, she was disarmed and without ammunitions, and already fatally wounded. Even without any external intervention, she would have died in a matter of minutes. A dead silence followed. The council was now curious, to say the least. She took a grenade and jumped on my brood sibling. She forced their mouth open via destruction of their own hands and shoved the explosives right down their throat, down to her shoulder. When you watch a human long enough, you learn to read their emotions. They are incredibly expressive. And even the slightest emotions can be showed on the faces. Her corpse, for instance, was laughing like a... It's impossible to describe. But it's something creepy, something just wrong. She seemed happy, but her happiness came from death. Scratched their right arms, visibly uncomfortable. Anyway, after this episode, I decided I wanted to know about the humans. Know your enemy, as the great masters say. And so I did. I started studying their culture, and I started interrogating the prisoners. They put away the mug and started scratching nervously their arm scales. They were nearing a topic. Hard. Hard to discuss. Hard to contemplate. Hard to... Hard. The first human I interrogated was rather confused by my questions. They said, shaking slightly, their antennae in amusement. I asked them how their families were structured, how their society worked, how they raised their children. This kind of question. All was relatively normal. Remember, we still talk about an alien race until I asked how they dispose of their dead. Can you guess the response? Looked at the camera, straight in the eyes. It depends, said the human. Up to this point, nothing too strange. We've had, we too have different ways. So, I asked, on what? And the human started listing out a lot of modularities on their response. After listening to them for some minutes, I asked them about death. About their relationship with it. And they responded jokingly, perhaps mocking me, but still, and I quote, the old pal, it's there, and one day it will take every one of us. We know it. At least I do. He called the ancient enemy Old Pal. From that moment onward, I concentrated all of my research on that, on their vision of death, and I found out almost all of their cultures revolve around death, or at least touches it. They made a hysteric clicking with their jaw pincers, visibly shocked by something. You know that humans still die of disease and hunger. We have forgotten those centuries ago, but they still fight death on so many occasions. We evolved from an apex predator. We had no one above us. They evolved from prey. They had, and still have, a lot of things that prey on them. They dance with death every day. Until, not too long ago, it was common for the females to die while giving birth. 
Ashwara stood up and walked in circles around for some moments before calming down. They had sat down again. I'm sorry, honored council members, he vowed. What I meant to say is that humans have a way tied to bond with death, and they even realize. And this brings me to what I wanted to say. The council finally saw this long charade coming to an end, and listened even harder than before. About yesterday's battle. We didn't fight soldiers. They were civilians. We fought their militia three days ago, and yesterday was meant to be a simple occupation. No fights, no deaths. And they fought with their civilians. They sent everyone that could hold a weapon. I saw their females, their elders, their younglings. I didn't see a single soldier. And yet I saw a whole colony of fighters. And the shocking view was that they, they launched themselves to death. They ran against the projectiles without searching for repair. They launched themselves into close combat without weapons. They charged in almost suicidally. Marshall averted their eyes, nervous. When we finally took the colony, there were no civilians to capture, except children too small to understand. No survivors. Every single human big enough to charge, charged. They covered the lands in blood. Both ours and theirs. Marshall shivered. Humans have a fantastical habit to record everything. And when we entered their city, we found the recordings of the speech one of them made to the whole city. And, well, Honorable Head Council, can I share the video? The Head Council clicked the pincers twice. Yes. Rasbaro tinkered a second with their datapad, then sent the record. The video showed a human, a male probably, in a public plaza with a voice amplification device and a rifle on his shoulders. Some of the council members shuddered the first time they actually saw a human, but their soft flesh, the pink skin, the weird fur on their head. Brothers and sisters, screamed the human, while the translators of the council members made his speech understandable. They came here and started a war with us. They killed our soldiers. They overcame our defenses. They cornered us. And now they are coming for us. Right now, they are marching towards this city. They will take us, and they will end us. I won't lie. I won't say that everything will be fine if we fight with all we've got. We may have ideals, dreams, and hopes, but once you are out there, they don't matter anymore. Such is a cruel reality. On the battlefield, every hope, every dream, everything is useless. None of it changes how a projectile kills, how a blast burns our bodies, how death itself walks those cursed lands and embraces soldiers on both sides. The only thing that matters is to kill the enemy and survive another day. Because, in the end, we will all die one day. Does that mean our happiness doesn't matter? Does that mean our deals are meaningless? Our very lives? Don't frack with me! Who here, who would dare say such a thing about our brothers and sisters that died to protect us? Were their lives meaningless? Were they? No! They serve as an example. They live in our memory, in our hearts, and in our lives every day. They are still alive through us. I lost my son against those monsters. 
If anyone here thinks they died in vain, come here, and I will kill you personally. They died, yes, and soon it'll be our turn. Does that mean our lives have been useless up until now? Was it meaningless to be born? Reinforcements won't make it out in time. When they arrive, we will be all be dead by long. Was it useless to build this city then? Because of that. Did our ancestors wrong us by setting their eyes to the stars and saying, They'll be ours one day. Every single one of them. And their death has meaning. Because we refuse to forget them. We refuse death to take even their memory away. I won't lie, brothers and sisters. We will die. I won't adulterate the better truth. But will we let them take everything from us? We will die, brethren. But will we let those monsters take even the ultimate freedom from us? Will we let them decide how we die? If there is no difference, hear me. Embrace your weapons and take as many of those monsters together with you to hell today as you can. We won't go gently into that good night. Brothers and sisters, we won't die an easy death. Together, we shoulder the memory of our fallen, and our children will shoulder ours. Hear me, warriors! Do not surrender to death. Don't offer the enemy the last courtesy. If you die, die free. Not like cattle. Make them hear your last screaming. Rage, soldiers, against the enemy. Rage against the dying of the light. They will have to conquer every single centimeter of our city. They will have to shed sweat and blood to take it away from us. They will have to tear it for far cold, dead hands. Because, my brethren, we do not falter against the cruelty of life. We do not back down. We look it in the eyes and bite it back. We push forward. Rage, warriors, and curse, swear and scream against the enemy, against life, against fate, against death. A roar broke up. A thousand upon thousands of those humans screamed furiously in a view that made even them of the war council flinch. The video stopped and the council members found themselves back in their council room, shocked by the speech. Some of them had broken their glass without being aware of it. What did they just see? There were no words. And after the speech, those humans fought like crazy. Smoke was everywhere. They launched themselves against our army on their cars. And when we destroyed them, they started running. When we started shooting at them, they took their fallen and used them as shields. They took another mouthful of et from their mug in order to calm down a little, their hand trembling imperceptibly. When we broke their legs, they started crawling on their arms. When they ended their ammunitions, they launched themselves in close quarter combat. When they broke their hands against our scales, they started biting us. When their teeth fell out, hell, they cursed at us. And when death finally took them, they glared at us with eyes. Remembering it made a shiver of pure frost run down their spines. Eyes of pure hatred and rage. And they didn't stop screaming for a single moment. Not one of them. Would you have a while? Scratched their neck, lost in thought. I couldn't fathom how humans could possibly survive on their own planet. 
let alone colonize others. And after yesterday, Erent and I shook violently, and their jaw pincers clicked nervously. There was this man that charged at me in the heat of battle. He was no soldier, I could tell. He never embraced a weapon before. It was clear by how he embraced it. And he had never killed another sentient. That too was too clear. Visible in my eyes. And yet here he was, charging straight at me. Screaming, only madness in his eyes. It was like... Like watching a death runner in the eyes. Some of the council members shivered, thinking about the only natural predator they had. One they drove to extinction long ago. But that still scared them. No fear. No reserves. Just a mad rage. He emptied his magazine on my armor, then took a knife and launched himself at my throat. Only now, some of the council members noticed that the point had been scratching on his neck, had a dent on its armored scales, and cut several centimeters deep. When I grabbed his head, do you know what he did? He bit me! He looked me straight in the eyes, and he bit my hand with everything he got, until his teeth broke and fell out. And then he spit his blood at me and cursed. And even when he died, his fangs didn't let me go. We entwined his hands with uneasiness. After yesterday, I understood how humanity arrived where it stands now. They are frail, they are weak, slow, clumsy, and fragile. But their spirit, their spirit makes up for all of it by tenfolds. He took a deep breath, searching the strength necessary. To say to the council what had to be said. You can tame a human, you can break them, you can make them miserable with surprising easiness. If you are capable enough, you can even break their spirit. Well, that's a single human. With humanity, you can't. You can't break them. You can't break that. There is no way around it. And every time we fight, they became harder to kill. They learn way too fast. What are you implying, Machabra? Asked one of the council members. The first question ever since the start of the communication. The council members had broken the rule. They had spoke without the head council's permission. But it was hard to ignore an insult such as that. Humans, on par with them, maybe their stronger weapons had a chance. But even then, they were prepared. Their soldiers were superior. What I am implying, honored council members, is that I don't know if we will be able to... They hesitated, while formulating a thought that horrified them almost as much as death itself. If we'll be able to win, we may win the battles, but I'm not sure about the war. Man, even if we won the war, it would only be a matter of time until humanity would rise again. What I am implying, your honored council members, is that the human spirit... ...stopped, silent for a second. We fight on the battlefield, and as soldiers, it's a shame for us to die there. It means we are weak. But them, the humans, they called it a beautiful death in their ancient times. They searched for it. They still do in some ways. When a human soldier is cornered, their first thought, right after they realize they will die, is to take as many enemies as possible down with them. They don't just simply give in to death. They watch it, spit in its face and defy it. Offering it the last insult while they try to make sure to bring company for their final travel. What I mean, honored council members, is that I am not sure our race is on par with the human spirit. looked at the camera, emptied of their thoughts. They were exhausted, both physically and mentally. 
They were shocked, but they were still elaborating what their eyes had shown them the other day on the battlefield. They did the finishing ceremonies and closed the communication, and then they looked out the window, leaning back on the chair. What they saw yesterday in the eyes of that man, the backs shivered, recording the memory. His eyes had a light in them, a burning flame that they had never seen. Their soldiers had never had such an animosity in them, such passion. Sometimes they had seen a spark, but that which burned in the eyes of that man, in all the eyes of humanity, was a flame, a fecking beacon, an entire sun of rage. And hell, they didn't know what it was. They just knew that it was something more. That passion, that spirit which burned with absurd intensity in their skulls, the rejection of fate made him afraid. It was something greater than their flesh, and deadlier than their enemy's weapons. That man from yesterday, he was no soldier, but he was a fecking warrior, all right. Feck! What the hell had they picked a fight with? End of story. 1996. Big Hearted Bull, written by Teller of Tall Tales. This is enough to get you through the month. Are you sure? Billy slowly stood, having tipped a credit chip into the homeless draconian's hat. A people of honor and pride. A draconian man dramatically pledged his life in service of Billy. Billy simply set her hand on this thin, sallow man's shoulder. I am honored, but please, regain your strength. Let your life not be a waste should the time come. The draconian, with magnificent red scales, regained some color, snapped a military salute. Billy smiled and gestured for him to continue with him down the street. Rising from the coiled resting position, I slid along the ground as he walked. He and I bore an uncanny resemblance to a human mythological creature known as a naga. I didn't know if this was a good thing or a bad thing, but he assured me that it was just an observation. The main street of Rustown was lined on either side with stalls that sold counterfeit goods, food that would put you in a hospital and homeless sentience. Billy worked at a soup kitchen nearest the town square, stating, Pays good, helps people survive, I'm happy with it. The sun beamed down on us as we made our way down the street. It was going to be a blissfully warm day. I'd been lost in my thoughts when suddenly Billy grabbed my arm, eyes fixed on something happening in an alleyway. His smile melted away. He looked angry. Then I saw why. Two massive Traxian males were kicking a curled-up lump on the ground. Without a word, Billy stepped into the alleyway. He broke into a jog, then started running as I tried to catch up and stop him. The Traxians ahead wore a signature scale dye tattoo of the red sun with the black center on the backs of their necks. They were light snuffers. Billy was about to get himself killed. I'd only made it halfway down the alleyway when Billy tackled one of the eight-foot-tall Traxians to the ground. He didn't even get two punches in before the other Traxian ripped him off and threw him against the alley wall. They didn't stop there, though. The one on the ground picked up a glass bottle as he stood and smashed it against Billy's face as he tried to get up. I watched on, frozen in fear, as the two hulking reptilians proceeded to punch and kick Billy against the wall until he finally stopped struggling. Then... Realizing they had a witness, turned to face me. Chuckling darkly, they began to walk towards me. One drew a large knife, a mad glint in his eyes as I tried to slip backwards. I whipped my tail out, trying to sweep them off their feet, but the one on the right caught bit by the tip and pulled. 
I fell flat on my stomach before turning over and raising my arms to shield my face. Then, from behind them, a brick sailed from the alleyway, smacking into the back of the left one's head. When they turned around to look behind them, I caught a glimpse of Bull. There was a jagged cut on his cheek and over his right eye. His dark, raven-black hair was soaked in blood from yet another cut in his skull. As his right eye was swollen shut, a tooth was missing on his blood-stained gums. He was shaking, but he was also grinning. Come on now, if you're going to beat a man to death, don't stop halfway. The curled-up bundle previously on the ground had disappeared. The Traxians took no notice of this, however, as they closed back in on Billy, who, to my utter shock, raised his arms in surrender. He wasn't even going to try and fight back. A crushing blow caught him in the jaw from the right Traxian, knocking him to the ground. As he tried to stand again, the left one kicked him in the ribs. Billy rolled onto his side, and they just kept kicking him. Then one raised a knife and brought it down on Billy's side, making him gasp in a horrible, wet way. I was helpless, useless. I tried screaming and begging to let him go, to stop, but it fell on dead ear holes. That's when a Dobian Ractal knife flew over my head and buried itself in the thigh of the left Traxian, who let out a scream as the serrated blade sunk deep into the flesh. I turned. Nobody dared draw a knife against the snuffers. Then I saw who'd thrown the knife. A Dobian, muzzle-twisted in anger, stood swathed in a thick brown robe. Behind him stood a draconian from earlier. Beggar's rags gone to reveal a sturdy, muscular physique as he hefted a large metal pipe. But there was more. A centellian, chitin visor, dropped down over the vulnerable face. Stony skin painted the darkest black of tar. The Kalupian, their eyes boring into the back of the right one's head as they copied everything the Traxian knew into their own knowledge. And lastly, stepping from behind them, an ancient-looking Traxian male with a blacked-out sun tattooed on their cheek. I dared not move as he opened his mouth. You do not interrupt the Don. What is this I hear about my subordinates? Beating at absolute scales of the big-hearted Bill. The Traxian on the right tried prostrating himself to explain, but Don shut him up with a wave of his hand, stepping past the two. He knelt down by barely breathing Bill in a gesture completely unexpected from the Don. He gently cradled Billy's limp form and picked him up, walking back towards me. I slowly righted myself and followed the Don, when he twitched his tail at me. I couldn't hold my tongue any longer. Anxiety gripped my chest as I blurted out, Will it be okay, sir? The Don paused halfway to his calf, and I only now realized that he's starting to cry. I do not know my serpentine child. He is still breathing, and for their sake, he better remain that way. I held Billy's hand as the machines hooked up to him beeped softly. He'd been in a coma for four days now. I admittedly hadn't left his side. I barely registered the Don walking in until he took a seat beside me. I looked over at him, the question obvious on my face. Why? He asked softly, still gazing at Billy's still form. Because I owe him a debt I may never repay. You see, two years ago, four gunmen from a rival gang shot up my wife and youngest daughter's hovercraft. My wife died in the initial barrage. But, my daughter... Only five solar cycles old at the time. I'd been hit in the neck, but didn't die immediately. Billy had seen the entire mess go down. Instead of running away here. He ran up to the craft while it was still being shot at. He took a slug to the face and chest, but it didn't stop him. He pulled my daughter free, and while still being shot at, 
held the wound closed with his bare hands. It was only minutes before EMTs on my payroll reached him, but in that time my daughter wouldn't have survived without him. He very narrowly avoided death that day as well. The Don trailed off, lost in memory before continuing. I have him to thank for every smile, laughed, cry, giggle, and tantrum my little girl makes. But he never asked for any reward. I told him he could have anything he ever wanted at a word. He didn't ask for a single credit. Instead, he... Billy's raspy voice cut off the Don. I only asked that he would make sure that she had a good childhood. The one I never got. I almost toppled the bed in my haste to give Billy a hug. He groaned as I squeezed him, chuckling. Hey... Careful, Ray. Broken ribs, remember? I recoiled back, apologizing profusely, but he waved it away. Opening his eyes to reveal the mismatched pupil size, I grimaced. That is a bad concussion. The Don smiled and stood, clapping Billy on the shoulder. I've got the two who put you here waiting in the lobby. Give the word and I'll have them turned into fertilizer. Billy laughed. The laugh quickly devolved into a cough before the smile and closed his eyes, leaning back into the pillow. Always so dramatic, Geopard. I have had no such thing done to them. I simply want an apology. Both I and the Don looked at each other in shock. I gaped at Billy as he folded his hands behind his head. They... they tried to kill you, my boy. Are you sure all you want is an apology? Now you can have them scrubbing your toilets the rest of their lives if you wanted me to. Billy smiled softly and wiped his nose. They should be apologizing to the kid that they were beating up for money. I wish I was exaggerating. They should truly answer to them. But you are correct. It is me they attempted to kill. So yes, an apology will do. John Geopart sighed softly, a smile slowly turning up the edges of his lips. Very well, though if you change your mind, we did already have them dig their own graves. My fear for the Don was suddenly renewed as he padded out of the hall. But he sighed again. I still think Geopard watches The Godfather one too many times, but uh, so long as it keeps my ass above the dirt, I don't care. I stared at Billy dumbfoundedly. How in the actual feck are you so nice? He gave a hearty laugh like my question was stupid. <laughs> because my father was a selfish douchebag, and I refused to be anything like him. Now, uh, can we please stop talking? My head feels like it's full of pottery shards. I nodded and slithered over to the door to turn the lights off. End of story. 1997. Adapters. Written by I am the Hype TFS. Some thought that real magic might actually exist. And they were right. But not quite in the way they assumed. There was no elemental spells or long-range casting. Magic was instead a close combat weapon. And focused entirely on physical enhancements. There were two styles of magic, and both sought to take advantage of a person's emotional state. Something incredibly important, since it was an emotion itself that powered this magic. There was instinctual mages who let their emotions run wild and flood their bodies with mana, turning them into consistent damage dealers with tanky constitutions. The instinctual mage could demolish a concrete wall in a matter of seconds, depending on just how much they let their emotions run rampant. And while they weren't adept at dodging, relying on instincts to guide them meant that they could vaguely predict an incoming blow and move to block it in advance. Then, there were controller mages, who were virtually defenseless in terms of mana, but were able to channel their magic in powerful controlled bursts. 
This allowed them to achieve incredible feats of speed and dexterity, making them notoriously hard to land a blow on and letting them surpass even instinctual abilities to preemptively block them. These bursts of magic also made their own strikes even more potent than that of the instinctual mage, and even allowed them to land true damage on an instinctual's manner's infused body, piercing the magical protection. But because they couldn't afford to take a direct blow from their opponent, it was common for a controller to wait until the vital area was exposed before attempting to land a strike for the most damage with the least risk. When humans learned of this, they quickly determined that the two were essentially a DPS-slash-tank and dodge-slash-crit builds. The other races were a bit surprised at how easily they adapted to the new knowledge and abilities. But what truly baffled them was that the humans didn't lean towards one style of magic over the other. Their races had determined the most appropriate style for their people and trained their populations with that style in mind. But the humans had no sense of unity in this sense allowing individuals simply to try whichever one they wanted. There were, of course, organizations that eventually grew out of the need for training in one style or another, but the split between controllers and instinctuals amongst humans was much more varied than any other race. A few years after their introduction to the rest of the galaxy and magic as a real concept, the humans were given an invitation to participate in a tournament which pitted the best that each race had to offer against each other. They accepted but when they held their own competitions to determine who would represent them, there was no media or audience allowed. This was another point of confusion for all the other races since they couldn't understand the secrecy. Wouldn't the humans just choose their best controller or instinctual? Regardless, they let that pass without too much thought and accepted the nominated human when all was said and done. The selected controller was older than they expected from the humans, in his early 40s but they assumed it was his military career that had allowed him to clinch a spot from his fellow competitors, having around 20 years of service. The first half was as a combatant and the latter half as an instructor. So the choice made sense. The humans were relying on his prior active duty experience and the resolve and patience required of someone tasked with teaching other soldiers. Even so, much like any race's first time participating in the tournament, they didn't expect much. Perhaps a good first showing at most, but the odds of him making it past the first third of the tournament weren't good. Of course, the humans had already surprised them with their ability to adapt to other areas, so they didn't entirely rule out the possibility that he might go a bit further than they assumed. So when he made the first move against the instinctual, a tactic almost unheard of when controllers faced instinctuals because their opponent wouldn't even have had time to create an opening to look for, and it needlessly exposed them to danger from a counter-attack. They were disappointed. Until he knocked the alien out in a matter of seconds later, with the precision strike to the jaw, his fist almost seeming to slither around the raised arm and land a decisive blow. Slipping his hand into his pockets, he left the fighting stage while the live crowd of thousands and an audience of billions watched from their homes sat in stunned silence. Only after he had left did the announcers and crowd both recover and begin to roar with excitement at the completely unexpected victory. They had thought that the human might have made it through a few rounds, but definitely not finished the fight this easily. It seemed that even their most tentative predictions might have been a setting this human too short. Because of the number of rounds, competitors were allowed to join the audience after finishing theirs. Specifically, cordoned off sections for them and any friends or family they had brought with them. 
They could also choose to sit with other competitors, which many did since it gave them a chance to make connections with influential and powerful members of other races. But without fail, after each round, the human chose to sit with his wife, Annabella, and daughter, Mary, who appeared to be in her mid-teens. He didn't seem to have any interest in making any connections. This rubbed some of the fighters the wrong way and made them feel disrespected. Just because this human was having an easier time than they all expected, he thought he was above them. Even as dirty looks and glares were aimed his way from the competitor's section, he ignored them and enjoyed the fights and the time with his loved ones. Eventually, the tournament crossed the halfway point and the human was still performing admirably. Though, now that he was meeting more skilled and tested opponents, he wasn't able to achieve the startlingly quick victories that had put his spotlight on him. Even so, it was impressive for a new fighter to reach this far and without any real distinctive style. Nothing was flashing or unique about his tactics or strikes. In fact, they were quite basic. But those basics were rock solid and it felt like he didn't need anything more than that to be a threat. Making it to the semi-files was unexpected even for Paul himself, but it's not like he was going to be disappointed at doing too well. So he just shrugged it off and walked onto the stage. He still wasn't used to having this many eyes on him and didn't have a showman-like personality like some of the others, but he'd been slowly getting acclimated to the crowd as he fought and if he ever found himself too distracted, he could just focus on his family. Things were getting a bit tougher the deeper he got into the tournament's roster. But so far, nothing he saw as hopeless. He'd been watching the others in their matches and had a rough idea of who he would find more challenging to face and his next opponent definitely fell into that category. In his honest opinion, he didn't think that he had a shot at winning the whole thing. There were other fighters who had similar skill sets, experience and more time than him in active competition. Not to mention the fact that he was no spring chicken and had been ultimately selected by humanity because they wanted to display their foundation, not their ambition. Still, it wasn't in his nature to back down from a challenge, and he thought he had at least a 50-50 shot of beating the bipedal lizard man in front of him. His scales added a bit more protection to his body, and he was an instinctual on top of that. But physical defenses didn't mean much against the manner and few strikes, so it just meant Paul would have to stack up a few more strikes than usual. The starting signal blared and the lizard man charged in, trying to close the gap and limit Paul's movements, but he managed to maintain distance. Short bursts of magic firing through his legs, allowing him to dart around just outside the alien's rage as he waited for an opening. Spry bastard for an older human. Who knows, maybe if they'd sent someone younger, they might have had a chance. Shame, you're going to be carried on a stretcher when I'm done with you. Paul rolled his eyes at the taunt. Distracting or provoking a controller into making a mistake was the most basic of instinctual tactics, and this lizard man was going to have to try a lot harder to break his concentration. He ignored the words and continued to move, throwing in a few feints here and there to see if he could get his opponent to make a mistake. Saw so you sitting with your family instead of the rest of us after your matches. Must be real good company for you to not even give the rest of us the time of day. Guess I can't blame you. I asked around and heard your daughter's name was, uh, Mary. Yeah, that was it. I gotta agree, she seems to be, a uh, real good company. The lizard man saw Paul's movements halt and pounced on the opportunity, closing in and rapidly spinning around, whipping his alligator-like tail into the human's gut. Gut! Something was immediately wrong. 
The alien couldn't complete the spin, his tail not following through on the strike that should have sent Paul flying off the stage. Looking back over his shoulder, he saw the human just standing there, doubled over with his arms wrapped around the tail. Try as he might, he simply couldn't wrench it free from Paul's grip, and that was when he realized the manner pouring off of his body, rolling off of him in waves as he straightened up. The human slowly turned his head to aim his livid glare at the lizard, who had just implied he wanted to sleep with his underage daughter. But, 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 you're a controller. Why, why can, can you, why are you an instinctual? Nothing but parental rage fueling him. Paul pulled hard on the captured tail, lifting the alien clean off his feet and swinging him around in a high arc to plant him headfirst into the stage. Rolling him over, he bent down and grabbed both sides of the head and began smashing it over and over again into the stage, the floor cracking and crumbling with each successive blow. Planting a foot on the back of the lizard man's head to mash his face even deeper into the floor where a small pool of crimson had begun to form. The human was so focused on his opponent that he didn't notice his wife attempting to fight through the event's security, having jumped from her section to try and get a piece of the alien herself. The only thing that seemed to finally stop her in the end was the disgusted and equally angry Mary telling her that if she interfered, her dad wouldn't be allowed to keep beating the hell out of him. After shouting at her husband to cripple that bastard, she allowed herself to be escorted back to her seat, waiting to be appeased through his application of violence on the lizard man beneath him. Shifting his grip to the base of the alien's tail, he put all of his weight onto the foot and planted the back of the scaly skull, when wrenched back hard. On my planet, lizards who have their tails ripped off can grow them back over time. I wonder if your kind has the same ability. His voice was disturbingly calm yet easily communicated the absolute rage causing through his body. Meanwhile, his opponent could just barely be heard, letting in increasingly painful screams, muffled by the stage his face was becoming more and more deeply embedded in. As he felt, the tendons, ligaments, muscles, and skin be stretched, snapped, and torn as Paul continued to exert more and more force, until finally, with a sickening wet sound, a gush of blood, it was finally ripped clean off. The lizard immediately passing out from pain and shock. Paul hoisted the detached tail over his shoulder like a trophy and walked off the stage even as a team of medics rushed past, giving the man who was still giving off a dangerous amount of mana a wide berth in the process. Thanks to the medical team, his opponent's life wasn't in jeopardy, but having taken the fight to such an extreme was grounds for disqualification. It was just that no one wanted to be the one to tell the human the bad news. In the end, it turned out to be a moot point as Paul voluntarily forfeited his spot in the tournament and left the venue and planet on a human government vessel. Humanity offered a non-apology in the wake of the incident, merely saying that it was sorry that the events had transpired that led to this result. And while there was initial plans to request the return of the tale, the sight of the grim-faced human still covered in his opponent's blood discouraged any from actually attempting it. A formal request was sent to humanity's government but was completely ignored. Three very important pieces of information regarding humans emerged from this incident. First, was that the mention and the threats towards the people of human controller loved would be absolutely break and shake their concentration. The second, was that under no circumstances should you ever do this if you wanted to survive with all limbs and appendages intact, assuming the human didn't simply kill you outright. If a skilled controller could turn into an instinctual of that threat level, how much further could a human instinctual be pushed if they were already powerful despite not being truly enraged yet? 
The question terrified those who asked it, and none wished to see what form the answer might take. The third and most important piece was that human mages could not be simply categorized into two default groups, as the rest of the galaxy had been. With the vast array of personalities and traits of their people, and no concentrated effort by their governments to pull them towards one end of the spectrum or the other, it had to be considered that almost anything had the potential to trigger a human change. Nothing was more terrifying than an unpredictable enemy who could change tactic and style with almost no warning, especially when the change granted them a massive increase in power and best suited their current emotional state. The humans weren't controllers or instinctuals. They were adapters. End of story. 1998. Who could possibly pay the price for a kilometer? Written by Lederside, 2 to 1. The price for a kilometer was very, very high. Every species knew it. It was high enough that most modern aiding governments couldn't even fathom the cost, let alone afford it. Who, after all, could lose their best soldiers, bear the economic losses, deal with the angry masses? To avoid war, many pacts, alliances, coalitions, and more alike were established between themselves. To divide up territory, solve trading woes, organize plundering of worlds, and other steps that need to advance one civilization. Yet, there was one species missing from these collaborations. Humans were often looked down upon, though at first impressed when the humans had the power to help liberate the chronic peoples of the Spectalians. The various alien civilizations were later no longer infatuated with what they saw as a once promising but now stagnant civilization. For the humans, for some reason, didn't want to expand. In fact, they were content with just colonizing their own twin sun solar system, an idea preposterous to many others. The fact that the Kosin later practically turned their planet into an artificial death world didn't help much with such perspectives. But none of these facts bothered the humans much. Thanks to the efforts of the Spectalians and the Kosin, they had seen what many aliens could and would do, and were quite happy to be left themselves isolated and alone. But that all changed when the humans found that one planet in their solar system, simply dubbed the Frontier, was immensely rich in rare earth element ores, which were utterly essential to advancing one scientific civilization. When the various alien governments heard about this through their various back channels, oftentimes humans informants and turncoats, each checked to see if they had any treaties with the almost forgotten about civilization. The glee of each when they realized they had none with the humans was immeasurable. From close by to far reaches of space, each sent its own troops to invade, plunder, and kill. To claim the land for king, country, or people. The poor humans were completely unprepared for the landing aliens. The various alien armies, already having divided up to land prior in various meetings, swept across the barren desert frontier land as the humans retreated further and further back. There was virtually no human military personnel there except for those in the handful of observation bases. Why? The NIF reasoned, would they need to have more than a couple? It was the frontier where humans could return to a homestead life, after all. However, the lack of military presence quickly made the remaining loosely organized homesteaders retreat to the impromptu evacuation zones. With the remaining humans either dead or evacuating, the various alien governments claimed victory. 
The humans from the frontier, now back on their home planet of Lunsik, caused a refugee crisis amongst the FSL and other human states. The alien civilizations, emboldened by the Blitzkrieg, decided not to invade Lunsik. What, they reasoned, could the humans possibly do on their worthless potato of a planet? In truth, it was more because of the universal trait that almost all alien civilizations had. Greed, that caused them to withhold from attacking. While the alien governments poised their non-attacking of the human home planet of Lunsik as a moral and righteous decision, they quickly set up mining infrastructure to sap and extract the planet of its precious elements. They were determined to turn the frontier into a husk. After the National Identity Front, the one and the only party allowed in the FSL dealt with the chaos caused by the refugees and the frontier invasion in general. It asked or forced everyone to move to the countryside or into underground cities or bases to minimize casualties from the potential invasion or orbital strikes. In reality, the members of the NIF wanted to make sure their following actions would be unseen and unheard of by the various alien governments. They were going to build landers, artillery, small arms, armor, and everything else needed to achieve their goal, taking back the frontier. The aliens reaping the rewards of the frontier soil were more than glad to ignore the humans. They figured, after all, what could the humans do with the NBC-contaminated planet? They couldn't grow food, mine minerals, transport goods, or do anything else without tremendous effort. They considered humanity good as extinct when they were trapped on Lunsen. The NIF slowly but surely amassed more material as the alien settlers and governments grew more and more self-absorbed in their riches. Numerous sweat, tears, and unfortunately people were spent in developing and manufacturing the war material, but none actually touching the material due to the inhabitants' NBC suits. And finally, after many turbulent years, the NIF was ready. As NIF soldiers descended onto the frontier ground, they braced themselves for the fight of their lives, quite literally. The alien armies, those startled at first, then started to fire upon the landing humans. The wave of air-dropped soldiers failed to retake much land, if any at all. It was firmly repelled. The commanders laughed and ridiculed the humans. How could they possibly go up against them? Their confidence was justified and reinforced by the attack's casualty rate, 87%. With the humans suffering such a massive loss, they would sue for peace soon. Perhaps, as part of the peace negotiations, they could take some of their land. The various alien commanders thought in glee. All of these thoughts vanished when the Oglian soldier reported that a human space jumper landed on the hard, rough frontier soil. The second wave had arrived, 92% casualty rate. All human objectives failed. The third wave came a few days later after that, 84% casualty rate. All human objectives failed. When the sixth wave came, the alien army's confidence began to waver just slightly. Why weren't the humans surrendering? They were mounting immeasurable losses in men and material. They should have sued for peace long ago. Seventh wave, 79% casualty rate. All human objectives failed. Eighth wave, 88% casualty rate. All human objectives failed. Ninth wave, 67% casualty rate. 80 square kilometers captured. Humanity's gaining of a foothold shocked everyone. How could they? The alien troops had the best in arms, troops, and strategy, yet the humans captured some land. The alien commanders remained calm, however. After all, all they had to do was squeeze the humans out of only 80 kilometers. No joke to boost alien morale began to surface amongst the alien armies. 
One that jested how a ninth wave humans couldn't see the frontier ground because it was covered in the corpses of comrades. There was some truth to it. First assault on human-controlled territory. 41% human casualty rate. 9% alien casualty rate. 55 kilometers held by humans. Second assault on the human-controlled territory. 38% human casualty rate. 14% alien coalition casualty rate. 49 kilometers held by humans. Third assault. 22% human casualty rate. 24% alien coalition casualty rate. 48 kilometers held by humans. The alien commanders were furious, their respective governments more so. How could they lose more men than humanity? This was unacceptable, they said. They would put everything they had into the next assault. The alien commanders agreed. Right before they finished planning, however, Spectalian commander noticed something out the window. A human in full-body black armor with a gas mask helmet combo with lenses that glowed red. The humans had come to them. By the time the humans had gained a tenth of the whole planet, the alien commanders all had a thought bubble up in their dark subconscious. Could the humans actually win? The Earls were the first to give up the fight. They claimed that they extracted more than enough resources to cover their expenses. They also claimed that if they remained there any longer, they wouldn't be the case for long. The Elven commanders pulled their troops from the front lines and left without more fuss. Eighth of the planet recaptured. The Oglo were the second. After the Green Bay battle, their commanders announced the coalition that they no longer had sufficient ammunition for their weapons. When the others offered to donate theirs, the Oglo commanders refused, saying that the ammo was incompatible. Everyone there knew they just wanted out. They also pulled their troops and headed home. Fifth of the planet recaptured. The Saldis weren't so lucky to escape unscathed. The humans, more familiar with NBC material than anyone else, deployed their chemical radio flamers against them. They all suffered from genetic damage and toxins. The soldiers, angry that the humans could have had the nerve to use such material against them, deployed NBC weapons against the humans. The humans, wearing NBC suits ever since the first time the Croson landed on Lunsek, simply shrugged it off. Now spiteful with no way to release their anger against the humans, the soldiers also packed up and went home. They suffered more damage from the NBC materials than they let on. Third of the planet recaptured. The Sonzoids were next. After their military leadership was quite literally torn apart by human infiltrators, they retreated into chaos from the front lines. Without any superiors, organization within the Sonzodian army quickly fell apart, and they flew back to their planet. Majority of the planet recaptured. The starving Yukats left the shame after the humans utterly defeated them with a casualty ratio of 1 to 30. The Yukats all crammed together in the remaining ships that were still in the coalition-held territory. With the Yukats gone, only one species remained. 99.9% of the planet recaptured. The Spectalians were humanity's longest and second most hated enemy. So it was not a surprise to the human soldiers that they were the last ones remaining. Since the Spectalians were the closest to humans, as well as being the only alien army prepped for the frontier, they were responsible for all their reparations. As the head commander of the Spectalian Expeditionary Force sat on the stiff, metallic chair, he stared at the document laid on the table before him, yet didn't actually read the words written. A thought was bugging his mind the entire war, and he, after much deliberation, decided to ask a lone private that guarded the desolate cell he was in, 
both of which were testaments that the humans didn't really care or respect the Spectalians much anymore. Soldier, answer me a question, said the artificial, translated voice of the Spectalians' visor produced. The soldier remained silent and stood steady, not even turning towards him. The Spectalian continued anyway. How could you throw so much away? I visited the mass graves during your initial waves. They took up my entire peripheral vision. How could you lose so much and yet continue on as if nothing happened? The soldier, though, shifting a bit, did not respond or move. He remained in position. The Spectalian pressed on. The Spectalian commander decided to appeal to the human's emotion to garner a response. Ah, I see now how you do it. You simply have no regard for your comrades' lives. You see the rifle, armor, and other war material handed to you as trash, ready to be thrown out. When you see the comrade you left to get blown to bits by our weapons, you don't even care enough to turn around to look. You simply see the price of war as that. Something that you have to put a certain amount of material in to win, not caring about the people and work that makes up this purchase. This indeed did trigger a response from the private. He flung open the cell door and stormed inside. He slammed his hand on the rigid, cold, and unpolished table. He pointed at the Spectalian and began to talk. We damn well knew the price, and we paid it heavily. You want to know why we paid a price for every single goddamn cursed kilometer? The private took a deep breath and shook his head. We always want a piece, it's true. When my ancestors arrived in Lonsek, when found the actual aliens, they were hopeful for what the future might bring. I mean... The possibilities were endless. God rest their souls. If they only knew how evil you all were. You were all just plain despicable. When they finally realized what you are, what you did, they couldn't cooperate with any of you people. And so we withdrew, hoping that you wouldn't bother us. We wouldn't have to bother you. But still, you did. You still killed and plundered for your own greed. Murdered our brothers and sisters over and over again. Yet, you all claim that you're a peaceful species. Yet, your actions always contradict that. You're all hypocrites, murderers, liars, and... The private leaned in. We're gonna make sure you guys never do anything like that. To us or any other people. Again. The private then tapped the document. Now, sign. After the frontier war, the NIF... No, the humans changed. No longer. Were they going to bask in their isolationism? Every alien government that fled diplomatically begged for them to be what they once were, content with their own solar system. But there was no going back to what once was. Only towards the future, towards humanity's expansion, the age of humanity had begun. And yet, even as I, as a human historian, write this during a time when human civilization is stronger than ever, I can't help but feel like we are nothing more than a broken shells of what we once were. We lost something gradually over the various wars. Was it hope for the future? Optimism of what could be? I'm not sure. But I am sure, even as the human space jumpers reach the numerous stars, that humanity is less now than ever. End of story. 1999 Generosity and Gloss, written by Nettle Queen. The galaxy considered us freaks. Of course, we didn't consider ourselves as such. It was the rest of the universe that was crazy. I mean, who would have thought that planets with liquid water could support life? Liquid water! 
You might as well go swimming in liquid nitrogen while you're at it. Brr. So, there we were, silicoid creatures in a carbon universe. The only reason anyone would talk to us was because we could manufacture their star drives at a tenth of the cost. That's probably the only reason that they even were the slightest bit civil. And even then, you could tell that they would just go on to Dugon as fast as possible. So we kept to ourselves as much as we could, as much for company as anything. Like most sapiens, we are social creatures and would have enjoyed the chance to acquaint ourselves with these strange, cold people. But it seemed that the hearts were as cold as the worlds because no sooner than we entered their system were we informed that unless we had something to sell, we should leave because their habitats could not be adapted to our needs. Early on, we didn't mind. We told them that we had our own ways of compensating for the vast gulf in comfort zones and if they would please give us or sell us somewhere relatively isolated for the purpose, we would take care of the installation. Then came other excuses. Your generators are too high energy, and if we allowed them on the surface and one of them malfunctioned, it would be a catastrophe. Well, we ran some simulations and it wouldn't be any worse than if one of yours was blowing up. Still, it's too risky. We don't have any way for you. But what about the desert of it? We don't have any isolated areas. And on and on. Pretty soon, we got the hint and gave up trying to make friends and settled for making money. We were used to our galactic status as useful freaks by the time the humans arrived on the stage. They were not too different, psychologically speaking, from the other species. More rambunctious than most, but this was most likely because they were still relatively new to the idea of a larger universe and had all the energetic curiosity of a child. We were sure they would calm down after a century or two, once the amazement wore off. We didn't get much in the way of gossip. But it was evident, even to us, after a while, that these humans were unusual. Instead of growing up and taking their place on the galactic stage, they continued to explore for the sake of exploration and engage in other activities that were considered hedonistic and wasteful by the galactic community. The humans responded to this attitude with the same maturity that it comported themselves with, which is to say that they extended their middle fingers, which I understand is a gesture of extreme insult in my memory serves and continued as they had before. Though, having met a few of them, I personally think that they took a certain malicious pleasure in spitting in the eye of authority. We got here by following our desire to explore and discover, they said, and now that we're here, you want us to turn around and adopt an attitude that would have kept us planet-bound until the sun blew up. No thanks. Or something to that effect. I've never really been good at remembering speeches. It was inevitable that we would run into each other, if only because their starship's engines needed replacing and we had cornered the market long ago. In retrospect, we shouldn't have been quite so surprised that it went the way it did. They had heard of us and been warned away, but when you need an engine, you need an engine, and so I found myself in front of a video screen with a human. Like all carbon life, they looked bizarre, though at least they were vertically symmetrical. Apparently, my appearance was even stranger to the human than it was to me. It leapt out of its chair, and, if I was interpreting the tone correctly, cursing vehemently and invoking a deity. As per established protocol, both sides of exchange were muted, and the translators were the only conduit for audio. But I didn't need a direct line to know that the human was yelling at his fellows. Though, to what end, I was good only guess, as the only noun that it was using was untranslatable. 
In less than 10 minutes, there was closely to 20 humans gathered around the screen, all of them using untranslatable words in reference to me. I quickly tried looking up the wider interspecies dictionary, but it must have been a human-only word, because I couldn't find it in any available version, and the dictionary of the human languages was woefully incomplete. Eventually, they calmed down, and the one originally assigned to the communication spoke. Ah, I apologize for that. Your appearance took me off guard. The human's tone was far, far more respectful than any I'd ever heard. No offense taken. You were looking for a replacement part for your engine? Ah, uh, yes. Our alpha catalyzing ring is getting corroded and we wanted to replace it before it was too far gone. Still, then no to respect in his voice. How strange. Understood. Would you like us to install it or would you prefer to do it yourselves? The human's mouth twitched upward on one side. Uh, you probably know more about what needs to doing than we do. If you're willing to install it, that would be fantastic. The other human started murmuring in excitement. I could only guess, but it seemed so. And about how amazing it was that an untranslatable would be working on the ship. I nearly broke protocol to ask for a definition of the word they kept using. But at the last second my brain caught up to my mouth and I finalized the schedule for the repair instead. The repair went reasonably well. Their alpha ring was indeed badly corroded and likely would have blown out after the next jump. So we replaced it and sent them on their way. I was rather puzzled by their attitude, but I put it out of my mind as an anomaly to look into later. It was only a year later that the next human ship pulled into our yard. I was on communications again and was deeply torn between established protocol and my curiosity about what they saw when they looked at me. The burly human's eyes seemed to grow to twice their size as it looked at me. Well, damn, if Jose wasn't telling the truth, there's real untranslatables in the universe. Habit locked down hard and I requested their purpose of the visit. It was a simple repair, so simple, that I suspected that they had deliberately sought out our shipyard simply to verify what they had heard. Not long after that, we began to get human ships on a fairly regular basis. While we weren't very far off the popular route, Stopping at one of our yards unless absolutely necessary was all but unheard of. Naturally, some of us began getting suspicious that either the humans were up to something, or one of the other civilizations had put them up to something. What they were up to exactly depended on who was telling the tale. But every day, it was a different agenda. For the most part, I ignored the half-schizophrenic ramblings of the rumor mill, preferring to research all I could about human culture and history hoping to come across the word they kept using to describe us, but had little luck. I became reasonably fluent in their lingua franca, though given the physiological differences of our mouths pronouncing anything was next to impossible. It appeared that those fleshy flaps in front of their teeth play a large role in their language, and lacking such things, blips, I believe they are called them, makes intelligible conversation more difficult than it's worth. I rather wish I had found the courage to ask for a definition sooner, it would have made what happened next far more understandable. When the human ambassador arrived, the yard erupted in panic. That the species had regular contact with us was unheard of already. That one would actually send someone to talk was treading the border between a fever dream and an outright impossibility. By the time, I was the one with the most experience dealing with them, so I was naturally chosen as the one to receive the ambassador. I remember rather vividly that my biggest concern was that the pressure would bring my stutter out. I was fairly certain that I would die of embarrassment if that happened. The human was clad in an environmental suit, naturally, 
and it was bulky enough that I couldn't be sure whether Ambassador was a male or female. I hoped they wouldn't be insulted if I used the wrong pronoun. We had long ago scrapped the position of Ambassador ourselves. No one was willing to get within miles of one of us, and their lack of cooperation meant that the most any other sapient saw of us was a video screen conference, and that itself was rare. Most preferred text-only communication, all the better to ignore our existence. So there I was, chosen as a representative of our race, or at least of our yard, which happened to be the largest of its kind. Thinking back, that's probably why the humans made contact there. They, like most people, put quite a bit of importance on things size, assuming that something large must be important, because large things require more effort to maintain, or something. We regard large things as a necessary pain in the rear, preferring to have several moderately sized things to a very few large ones, if all other things are equal. There's some saying in the lingua franca about eggs and baskets that refers to the kind of situation, but the exact phrase eludes me. I was vaguely familiar with their gestures, so when the suited human inclined its head to me, I knew to return the motion. Welcome to Hysak Yard, I said. I am Kchi, and I would have the honor of accompanying you, if that is agreeable. Of course, said the human. We have much that needs to be discussed, and I would like to start as soon as possible. I hoped that I was simply interpreting the benign comment in the worst possible way, but my stomach began clenching nervously. Then please, come this way. I began to head towards the room that had been set aside for the purpose of this conference. Once the human was settled on the bench that had been adapted for its shape, I asked the purpose of the visit. To be honest, we're a little uncertain ourselves, the human said. You see, we have a planet in our solar system that's just about ideal for you, climate-wise, but we can't just give things away for free, especially something as big as a planet, and the fact that you'd be so close to our home planet makes the military types twitchy. But the rest of us think that it's just because everyone calls you the untranslatable equivalent to monsters of the universe doesn't mean that that's the case, and we're willing to give you a chance especially in the light of the marked lack of any kind of aggressive behavior on your part. For a long moment, I stared at the human, certain that this was some kind of bizarre joke. <laughs> Excuse me, but could you say that again? It sounds like you are offering us a planet. My stutter made an appearance, but I was too shocked to really care. A definite note of amusement entered the human's foretone. In a way... It's completely inhospitable for us, but someone crunched some numbers for the hell of it, and it turns out that it's very similar to one you came from. Those of us with more, uh, progressive mindsets figure that if we can't use it, but someone else can, we might as well see if we can hammer out some kind of agreement. I sat there and stared at them like an idiot for what must have been several minutes. I'm here to ask if you're interested in the idea as a whole said the human, not unkindly. The official agreement will likely take weeks or months to hammer out, even if everything goes perfectly. It seemed amused by this for some reason. Something in my brain must have shorted out, because the human reached out with his upper limb and waved it in front of my forward eyes. Are you okay, Kishi? I twitched so hard I nearly flipped myself onto my back. <laughs> I bit my tongue until I calmed enough to speak intelligibly. I am fine. I paused to take several deep breaths and tried to get my thoughts into some semblance of order. I cannot speak for everyone, and I do not possess anywhere near the authority to give you any kind of official answer. 
but I do not think that our leadership would be at all opposed to the idea. Its voice sounded both excited and pleased with my answer. I'll let my superiors know. We'll send a message to the next ship as to when and where we can meet. I nodded, another human gesture I had learned, and wished it well on its journey home. Then I stared at the too narrow bench the human had occupied during our conversation. A colony. Our first colony. We might get a real colony on a real planet instead of roaming bands of ships strung together. Planets that we could occupy without extreme and expensive terraforming were rare beyond belief, and all the solar systems that had them were already occupied, and thus hostile. Except now, someone was willing to let us in. I started hyperventilating and went to get myself a strong drink. Long story short, it took about seven years of negotiation, in no small part because we were suspicious as hell about the sincerity of their intentions, and the other races were making no small amount of noise about how the humans would regret associating themselves with such an unnatural creatures. But in the end, we hammered out a set of compromises that benefited both of us. We would get the planet called Venus. It would be ours to do with as we wished. Terraform it, blow it up, fling it into the sun. Just don't crash it into Earth, as one cranky diplomat put it. In exchange, each of us living there who was not in poverty would pay 1% tax to the Terran government, and our yards would produce or repair 500,000 tons worth of ship, which amounted to 15 medium-sized freighters, three large warships, or about half the repairs of their navy required. And we'll probably end up paying you for the other half, said one of the delegates. And they did. Venus was, it was far from a paradise, too hot even for us, an absurdly long day at night. But once we raised the nitrogen in the atmosphere by nearly 10%, and adjusted the ratios of some of the less common gases, it cooled off enough that the weather was quite pleasant. And the atmosphere was even more dense than the one we were used to, though not so much so that breathing was difficult. In fact, because the higher nitrogen content, breathing was actually easier, since you don't have to try very hard to get enough air. Of course, that wasn't even the best part. Since the air was so thick, we could fly. Our wings weren't large enough to support us at home, though we could glide very well. But on Venus, we could get into the air with a running start and keep ourselves there until we got too tired to keep flapping. I earned myself a pretty spectacular bruise figuring out how long that was too. Not that I regretted it at all. The views were stunning. Humanity acted as if something of a buffer between us and the universe that regarded our kind as freaks of nature, and we supported their love of exploring and learning for the sake of finding out interesting things. It was as close to an ideal partnership as anyone could ask for. They would develop, we would build, and we would both benefit. Their asteroid belt was fantastically rich in metals and rare earth elements, which meant that we had as much raw material as we could wish for. Humanity had long ago decided on a policy of finders keepers in regards to extraterrestrial resources. As long as it wasn't in orbit around Earth's moon or having mining drones on it, it was the property of whoever got to it. There was a hiccup when we snatched up an asteroid that was a destination of a batch of drones. But since humanity had forgotten to tell us that they weren't able to do much but grumble and tell us to make sure that they hadn't earmarked our next target before their operations... We grew very close, metaphorically. With our help, they discovered and colonized two additional planets, and they returned the favor, helping us locate and adapt another hell planet, as they jokingly called our candidates for colonization. I was so busy with the talks, and then there was coordinating and terraforming and planning and executing the release of the flora and fauna, 
that it was another two years before I remembered to ask about the untranslatable word that they had used early on. We can hardly imagine my surprise when I learned that it was a name of a creature from their mythology. Depending on who was telling the tale, they were either guardians or tyrants, hoarding treasure, and the guardians of unfathomable knowledge, often ruling over elemental forces, and always powerful beyond measure. Dragons. End of story. 2000. We've Got You, written by I Am The Hype TFS. They were just supposed to take samples and leave. Everyone on the mission knew how dangerous this planet was, but they thought they timed the expedition well enough to avoid the greatest threat it posed. The weather had other plans. The Wyvrath were an aquatic species that lived in the depths of their ocean world. So when they left the water and ventured off other worlds, they always had to wear a pressure suit filled with water, which was supplied oxygen from a tank on the back by the way of a pump. At the same time, the carbon dioxide they released is filtered out and vented into the atmosphere outside the suit. If the pump were to fail, the Wyvrath would suffocate, and if the integrity of the suit was compromised, the change in pressure would have explosive consequences. This being the case, the suits were especially sturdy and resistant to damage by design. This combined with the fact that they were functionally interchangeable with spacesuits for their species allowed the aliens the ability to explore harsh or airless environments for limited periods with enough caution and planning. DN-20 was one of over 30 moons orbiting the gas giant DN-1 within the Wyvirth home system, and it was toxic in every sense of the word. The various flora and sparse fauna had all adapted to be highly acidic or basic in response to their environment just so they could survive. Plants produced strong bases so they could neutralize the acids in the water they took in through their roots, while animals, which were mostly herbivores but highly aggressive, developed even stronger acids in their digestive tract to counter the bases of the plants. As far as could be surmised, there were not and had never been a sentient species to exist on this moon, which left them with nothing but conjecture about what type of magic they would have developed if they had. Of course, the air itself wasn't safe to breathe either, with it taking only several breaths to begin dissolving the tissues of all parts of the respiratory system of any non-native species. And that wasn't even mentioning what damage would be done to exposed flesh. Only the process would be slower in the case of a species with thicker skin. It would still only take roughly a minute for the outer layer of skin to be eaten through, exposing the underlying dermis. But while it terrified the Wyvirth, it was also an amazing opportunity to study and research the first world of its kind. There were tales from the homeworld of the blessed humans of regions where life thrived in most inhospitable of environments, but even then, those were specific regions and circumstances, while this was an entire world. A whole planetary ecosystem where survival was based on the being just as toxic or even more so than whatever you were competing with for food, or even the food itself. And so they prepared. They paid careful attention to weather patterns, sent probes and rovers to send back data for them to analyze, and compiled everything to lay out as best as possible time, place, and conditions for a landing party to touch down on the surface. They increased the density and durability of the outer layers of their suits so they could endure for longer, before having to leave and put a thick metal plates on the bottom of their boots to stop the ground or anything on it from eating through them from below. After that, it was just a matter of location and time. Finally, they found what appeared to be a gap in roughly four hours where there was no projected inclement weather, 
namely acid rain, that could eat through their suits in a matter of minutes, even with the new improvements. The location was a small valley directly next to a large rock formation and seemed to contain relatively few animals. This was ideal, since collecting samples from the environment and native flora would be an easier task with minimal interference from territorial wildlife. An away team of five were selected and sent down with vials and containers designed to withstand the toxicity of the items that they would have to hold, along with trackers, so the main ship could pinpoint their positions from orbit and intervene if it proved necessary. And with that, a shuttle was launched and the crew set out in this grand new adventure. Unfortunately, things didn't go to plan. Landing the shuttle under the shade of a natural orchard of trees bearing unidentifiable fruit, they moved in a group, not wanting to venture too far from each other on a world as dangerous as this one. Otherwise, everything was proceeding as expected. The integrity of the suits was holding up well, and their boots only showed hints of damage, and only to the treated metal soles which came into direct contact with the ground as they walked. When one of them would collect a sample, the other four would keep watch so the collector could completely focus on the task at hand before moving on once more. They continued like this for about an hour and a half before an urgent call came from the ship in orbit. Emergency! The weather has changed unexpectedly. There is a massive rainstorm making its way towards the valley. We don't believe that you have time to make it back to the shuttle. Stay put while we come to collect you and the samples. Repeat, stay where you are. We are homing in on the signals as we speak. The team felt the rush of panic and carbon dioxide began venting out of their suits at an accelerated rate as they experienced their species version of hyperventilation, but calmed themselves and each other with the knowledge that the ship was on its way. So they waited, and waited, but now they could see the storm clouds and sense the dread starting to creep in. Another call came in from the communicator. Where are you? We're at the location of your signals. Can you see us? The concern in the voice of the ship's captain and the fact that there was no ship in sight confirmed a nagging what-if scenario that had started playing in the minds of the way team after they felt too long had passed while waiting. Something was interfering with the signals, an environmental or atmospheric variable they had not accounted for. Perhaps it was the same variable that had caused their sudden shifted weather. Whatever the case, the ship couldn't find them and they couldn't afford to wait any longer. We are going to attempt to find shelter and ride out the storm. Something is interfering with our tracking signals, and we don't know if we will be able to maintain communication during the storm. The shuttle is somewhat sheltered and should make it through without too much damage. If the storm passes and we can't re-establish contact, meet us by the shuttle. Team leader Argarth out. Following the leader, the group broke out into an awkward sprint, moving as quickly as the suits and water contained within would allow while frantically searching for anywhere to take shelter. Fortunately, they had been steadily moving in the direction of a rock formations to their north from the beginning, and at first drops began to hit the ground, they came into sight. Being from a water world, all five of them were wind mages, and initially they thought creating a shield of air around them would give them much more time to search for a crevice or a cave to enter. But they quickly found that manner of the world was just as toxic as the air, and if they hadn't stopped using the magic as quickly as they did, the mana poisoning could have been fatal. Regardless, by the time they did find a small cave that barely managed to hold the group, none of them were in good shape. It hadn't been just a rainstorm, but a downpour, and their suits had suffered terribly. Their integrity on the brink of compromise. 
Now they were weakened and vulnerable on all fronts, and it was all they could do to stay conscious and hope this cave wasn't the home of a creature who simply hadn't returned home yet. Of course it was, because when it rains, it pours. They huddled together for over three hours with the storm showing no signs of ending and no further messages from the ship. But at least they were safe. Then the cave's owner came home. It was a giant bull that rivaled them in height and easily tripled them in weight. Covered in an extremely thick fur, probably to prevent acidic rains such as this from making a direct contact with the skin, it halved and granted at discovering the intruders. The Wyverth were powerless to resist and all but accepted their fates when they noticed what looked like a plume of steam rising from behind the boar, followed by a giant figure that reached out and wrapped long arms around the belly of the beast and lifted, hoisting the squirming pig off its feet. The figure followed through with a motion, arcing their back and suplexing the animal, slamming its snout first into the ground. It was fully naked and hairless humanoid that stood at least twice as tall as their own three-foot forms, and the steam rising from their body was none other than the result of a chemical reaction as the acidic rain landed on their skin, burning and eating away at the endlessly, but for some reason unable to make any progress. The figure let out a fearsome roar from the depths of its throat, and the giant burst of steam poured out between curled lips and bared teeth. The stunned ball got to its feet and made a groggy charge, only to run directly into a punch that smashed it in its already injured nose. Blood gushed out of its nostrils. Already wary of the single opponent, the ball chose to retreat when another three steaming outlines came into view. Guessing you're the Wyverth away team, let's get you all patched up. The voice that came from the figure, clearly a female, now was they were close enough to see properly, crouched at the cave's entrance and was hoarse and raspy. More thick steam flowed out of her mouth as she spoke. Clearly a toxic air was wreaking havoc on their lungs, but she seemed to simply be powering through it. The Wyverth had a strong suspicion as to the species of the woman, but it was confirmed as soon as it reached her hand and a feeling of powerful rejuvenation surged through them. Healing magic. She was a blessed, a human. Not only were they healers, but they were essentially self-sustaining mana reactors. She wouldn't be affected by the toxic matter in the air like they had. Phil, get your ass over here. We got some mana poisoning. The female called one of her companions over. Not another steaming figure, but a clothed, damp one. Phil here is a unique blessed. His specialty is in purification. So he gets to take a stroll in the rain while we get to sizzle like steaks in a grill and have to grow all of our hair out again. Cleaning out your manor's not going to be a problem. Oh, I'm Jax, by the way. That's Stevie, Mark, and Betty. As Philip took Jax's place in front of the group and removed the impurities of their manor, Jax took the time to introduce the rest of her group. Our goth looked at Philip's outfit and didn't recognize it as a uniform and couldn't help but ask about their saviors. Nyanagath, the team leader, are you an early response team, or did our people request your help? Huh? Oh, no, nothing like that. We are on our way back from a party on, uh, Vic. Why can't I give the planets proper names anymore? Stevie, what was the planet? CRT5. That's the one. Anyway, we were heading back to a jump gate in the next system and decided to cut through here as a shortcut. That's when we picked up a distress signal from your ship in orbit, so we pulled over to see if we could help. Your captain said that they still couldn't get a lock on your signals, but they knew that you headed north for the landing point, so we just parked next to your shuttle and started walking. We figured that you'd head for the rocks since there's nothing else out here to really take cover by. And what do you know? Here you are. 
And our captain asked you to come help find us. Last crap, man, we volunteered. But enough about us. Then let's get you guys safe and sound. All right, fellas and girl, grab a buddy and keep him covered. And run like the time Principal Gibbons found out that we were the ones that let the kangaroo loose in the house. Jax picked up Argoth and cradled him like a small child against her chest, with the others doing the same to the rest of the team, before taking off in full sprints through the burning rain. Argoth and the others curled up against their human, afraid of the rain and fearing that their suits would finally fail. But Jax glanced down at him and gave a comforting smile. Don't worry, we've got you. They each kept their torsos hunched over to protect the wyvern in their care. Philip's purification range wasn't all that large, but he ran at the center of the group to at least lessen the acidity of the raindrops that fell around him. Whether it was from the mental or physical exhaustion of the day's events, the confidence in Jax's voice finally let Argoth and the others feel some semblance of safety, and they drifted off to sleep in their arms. After almost two hours of running, the humans finally made it back to the Wyvern shuttle and gently woke the aliens once inside allowing them to swap out the damaged suits for fresh ones and re-establish contact with the main ship. They thanked the humans profusely, promising that if they ever needed anything from them in the future, that they'd gladly help. That's really sweet, but no need to, to go to any trouble. We were just in the right place at the right time. Now, if you want to buy us a round of drinks sometime, then you've got a deal. But for right now, as much as I love being Buckass naked in front of complete strangers, I think I'm going to head back to our shuttle and slip into a fresh pair of anything I can find. See you around, Argoth. The humans all excused themselves and exited the shuttle, Jax letting out a string of curses as she looked up into the downpour as if it somehow forgotten the rain was acidic, which she had. Argoth and his team let out a round of exhausted laughter before settling in the shuttle's autopilot to return them to the main ship and slowly falling asleep once more in the chairs thinking about the humans who had saved them. Not because it was their job or obligation, not even because they'd been asked, but because they hadn't. They didn't know anything about them and hadn't even expected or asked for a reward for their efforts, except for a round of drinks. A minuscule price to pay for the lives of five sentient beings. They just helped because they could. Because someone was in trouble and they were in a position to do something about it. How very human. End of story. 2001 Gift Exchange Written by Random Isocahedron Arrival confirmed all systems functioning with normal parameters. Captain Uriot relaxed slightly. Despite hundreds of jumps, she still found the process disconcerting. Excellent, Oren. Begin the system scan. Oren pushed a few buttons. Active sensors are running. The nearest substantial object is 20 light minutes away. We'll have a complete passive data in under a minute. Good. Reorienting and preparing to burn. Ah, uh, something is on passive scanners. Small asteroid installation at the innermost planet's L2 point. Biologicals on board based on temperature. And there's a ship with a half a gigawatt reactor burning towards it at a tenth of a G. This is a small system. So we're both around three light hours out. Do they have any transponders? They are transmitting some signals, but the computer didn't recognize them. Let's see. Oren pressed a few more keys. Oh, they're Terrans. Using their new protocol, the station doesn't have a name and the ship's called the Pickup Truck. Weird name, even for Terran standards. Uriat looked at her own console. Are they, um, allowed to be here? Under the Treaty of Kepler-1649C, this area is freely accessible to all. As long as their so-called government hasn't tried to stop them, they have as much right to be here as we do. 
Well, I suppose we should tell them our intentions. It's only polite. She spoke into the computer, which translated the message and transmitted it. Greetings to the, uh, pickup truck. This is a trade ship Dalinar of the United Syndicate. We are moving at half G and expected to be leaving the system in 520 hours. We are transmitting our full planned trajectory. Please advise as the closest approach. Around four hours past two minutes of message composition. Later, a response arrived. Greetings, Dalinar. Closest approach will be 140 hours. We'll be three light minutes away from you. We're doing some light construction work here, but it shouldn't be a concern. And, uh, please stand by for a personal message. Personal message? Do they think they know us? Maybe. They want us to carry a message to someone else. It's fairly common in backwaters without dedicated courier ships. The message came through a few minutes later. We can send you some provisions if you like. We've checked it, and it should all be compatible with your biology. Oren looked at Uria strangely. Is this some sort of insult? Aren't they implying that we didn't bring enough food? Oriet responded thoughtfully. I don't know, perhaps, but perhaps not. Cultural exchange has been maddening slow. Due to their, um, idiosyncrasies. I think it would be in everyone's best interest if we assume that it is meant to be a friendly gesture. Tribute? Oh, symbolic trade. They might expect something in return. We could send them some of our own food, maybe. Hmm, maybe... The pickup truck came to a stop relative to the station and gently let go of the large ice ball it held. Inside, two children floated in EVA suits, grinning broadly, although you couldn't see the grins through the mirrored faceplates. All right, you sure you two are comfortable doing this on your own? Of course we are, Dad. They responded through the crackling radio. Okay, just remember I'm right here if you need anything. He hugged them, although they didn't feel anything through the semi-rigid suits. They flew, or perhaps wobbled, proudly into the airlock, which he cycled. Outside they flew around, placing tokens to target the pickup truck's laser, and then polishing up the small comet with hand tools. A few hours later, they pushed the many-faceted pieces of ice into position with careful bursts of compressed air. Once it was exactly right, they fastened it to the steel framework with lengths of braided carbon nanotubes. Returning to the pickup truck, they doffed their suits before accepting several more hugs. You did very well, called their great-grandmother, and the ivy is growing quickly. By the way, that ship contacted us. Well, uh, what happened? Oh, it's a syndicate trade ship. Anyway, grandma, sorry, my grandma, started carrying on about ping-pong, so now we're going to bake them some treats. The kids didn't know what ping-pong had to do with the passing trade ship either, but they liked baking especially since it meant that they had a taste of few ingredients beforehand to make sure that they were still good. They always were. 15,000 kilocalories and pies, cooking, puddings, and other delicious things were carefully packed into padded boxes. The boxes were lowered into a small pod, which was affixed to a hastily modified torpedo. It was fueled as its flight plan was transmitted to the Delanar. Delanar could well package launching in T-4 hours. They expect 8 Gs of acceleration, full flight plan attached. Well, that is certainly some very fast goodwill. Aaron studied the flight plan carefully. He looked at the attached data for the package. He double and triple checked. Captain, they're firing a torpedo at us. Uriad processed some words which no civilian captain wishes to hear. There was a danger, but Uriad couldn't see it. So her eyes instinctively moved apart to spot the threat or prey. An utterly useless adaptation against torpedoes. She brought them back to her console. Notably, no sirens were sounding. Man makes you think that. 
He simply pointed at the attached right plan, and then at the entry in the ship's database. This goodwill package is precisely the same size as a TOS-10 Pilum Hybrid torpedo, and the acceleration profile matches perfectly. It carries a one megaton fusion warhead that would wipe us out instantly. Uriot was remarkably calm. Can we evade it? A pause, some calculations. Yes, it is guided by the ship that launched it, so even at the closest approach we could be moving away for 24 minutes before it could react. And on this trajectory, the best time to evade has nearly an hour of light lag. It wouldn't even get close. Then why would they even bluff? They'll figure that we'll think that it's their provisions and let it on board. Then, as it approaches, it blows up and we die. A large, thin sheet of freshly mined aluminium, rolled into a millimeter thick, was manually placed in an acid bath and anodized. It was then removed from the acid bath with a purpose-rigged crane, carefully washed and dried, and placed into a pile of like sheets. Look, Harriet thought aloud, they're humans, they're crazy, and they're giving us a torpedo, just so that we could have a nuclear bomb in our workshop. It's entirely within character. Humans might think that's a reasonable gift, true, countered Oren, but their military wouldn't. And if they have torpedoes, they are military, or at least closely liaised with the military. There's no way they'd just hand us the hardware that they were so recently shooting at us. Hurriet skimmed the database entry for the TOS-10. It says here that they have replaced it by the TOS-12 during the war, and now the TOG-15 and the MSO-7. It's not modern kit. Still a torpedo. It was modern until a few years ago. If we had one, would we send one on the main battery lasers from the Laroni just because we have better ones now? Uriot had to admit that this was a good point. A boy in a mini tug carefully maneuvered the aluminium sheet into position, whereupon his two companions in spacesuits began riveting it onto the steel frame. Once it was securely fastened, he flew the tug back to the station hub to get another sheet. The thing is, if they are being honest about this being a gift, but they are sending it via torpedo for unreasonable reasons, we can't straight up evade the gift. That would be an enormous insult. You're seriously worried about insulting the people who might be trying to kill us? No, I'm worried about insulting them if they're actually not trying to kill us. And the thing is, the pickup truck's laser power far exceeds our navigational shields rating. We saw it cutting up the comet, although fates only knows why. And with that reactor, I doubt that their shields would even notice our micrometeor lasers. If they wanted us dead, they could kill us in a far more straightforward way than this weird deception you suspect them doing. And they'd get to take our cargo too. Even if the deception is highly unlikely, falling for the deception is much worse than irritating some humans who probably hate us already. Plus, ship-to-ship combat could be a plan B if a clean surprise kill doesn't work. Activating the EVA thrusters, another person exited the airlock carrying a box of xenon arc lamps. They propelled themselves precisely to a selected spot and a bolted an arc lamp on the framework. Once it was secured to their satisfaction, they moved a little over a meter and attached another arc lamp. What we need is a way to distinguish between deceptive Terrans and crazy Terrans. How does their behavior change if they are trying to kill us versus them being friendly but mad? The words hung in the air as both thought about it. Horan spoke up. If they're deceiving us, they'll be more suspicious of our own actions. They'll worry we're planning the same thing. If they're friendly, they'll probably think that we're friendly too. Clever. So we need to do something that would see seen as friendly if they are friendly, and seen as hostile if they're hostile, and then watch what they do. So send some provisions of our own then. Yes, but not just that. It has to look like a bomb if they're looking for one. 
but look like a gift if they're not. Also, it has to arrive before their torpedo does. Well, we have a catapult for, uh, basically just that. Handling off small payloads without slowing down. So, we just have to prepare a package which looks like a bomb, but only if you already think it's a bomb. An old man in an EVA suit, holding a chemical thruster with a fuel tank, surveyed the diffuse laser array. The batteries were nearly full, and there was no visible damage. He spent 20 minutes checking various delicate components, and then, satisfied, used the rest of the fuel to burn back towards the asteroid station. Wearing thick gloves, Uriet placed the spent fuel pellet canister in a box. Oren added some ration bars, a few bottles of sweetened starched slurry, and their day's rations of fresh plant matter. There we go. It'll set off the Geiger counters, but who waves a Geiger counter at something they fully believe to be a gift? What if they ask us about it? We'll say, oh dear, we put that in by mistake, and we'll know they opened it inside without scanning it, so we can trust their own package. Good, that works. The box went into a small transport pod, and then the pair returned to the cockpit for launch. Oriot grabbed the radio. Pickup truck, this is Delinar. Launching reciprocal goodwill package in T-minus five minutes. Expect high launch velocity and a 3G suicide burn on approach. Full flight plan attached. Notably, the package would have already launched by the time the Terrans received the message. That would have no way of weaseling out of the plausible excuse. The Dalinar's engines shut down, rendering Uriat and Oren weightless. Buying control thrusters rotated them about 120 degrees to aim the catapult. The catapult's rails telescoped out five times the Dalinar's length, and then the fine control thrusters made even more of minute adjustments, carefully aiming the package. A light flashed in the cockpit. Oriot and Oren simultaneously tapped their keys to sensors to opposite sides of the cockpit, and the package launched. The officer of the watch pressed a button to input the flight data to the pickup truck's navigational computer, and the radar beam automatically began tracking it. Attached to the flight plan was a message explaining that it was a package for them. Diplomatic matters went beyond the officer of the watch's powers. Her superior had to be contacted by her intercom. Mom, the trade ship decided to send us a gift. Can you help me translate a message to thank them? Oriot and Oren watched the transport pod's telemetry intently. Two humans in vacuum suits caught the pod and began guiding it towards their spacecraft's main habitation module. No one would ever do that if they suspected a bomb. The relief was palpable. Should we open it now? Yes. Let's see what they gave us. No. We should wait until the big party. No. Let's just open it now. They'll be expecting a response. Let's get everyone else here first. The 18-strong crew of the pickup truck, most but not all family, eventually gathered in the hangar where the transport pod had been brought in. It was decided that the youngest should open the gift. It was discovered that the youngest couldn't figure out the clasp on the transport pod. It was determined that all the siblings were allowed to help. The pod was opened with a collective effort, and people immediately began taking things out and laying them on the table. There were various colors of snack bar. The translator proved to be hopeless at translating the flavors written on them, but they tasted good. Two bottles of what was quickly determined to not be wine, but rather something that was reminiscent of tapioca, an acquired taste, it was decided and several fresh fruits. Precious, even on a station with a hydroponics section. The fruit was divided so everyone got a piece. They tried every part of it, and even the fibrous skin. It wasn't the greatest, but it was worth trying. And then, at the bottom, a fuel canister. The uranium oxides in it wouldn't work with the pickup truck's reactor or the stations, 
but they decided to accept the gift in the spirit with which it was given. Perhaps they could use it to make some model rockets or fireworks. A light-hearted argument over whether fireworks, which you could only safely observe indirectly, were worthwhile fireworks, was cast off by the demand that everyone who touched fissile material, yes, I know that has cladding, wash their hands. The modified torpedo screamed towards the Dalinar, its rear graphite plate ablating under the pickup truck's laser. Once it was within 10,000 kilometers of its target, the laser cut. It ejected the remains of the graphite plate and its chemical thrusters brought it gently into Dalinar's airlock. A robotic arm grabbed it and brought it into the cargo bay, where, with a screwdriver and a minor amount of cursing, Oren was able to open the jury-rigged pressurized transport capsule. It contained several padded boxes of various baked goods, many of which had not been squashed by acceleration. There was too much to eat in one sitting, so they sampled a few things. Oriette's favorite was the caramelized spiced sweetbread covered in sugar. Oren preferred the dark brown balls covered with white shredded something. Their translator was having trouble with the food's highly idiomatic names, but that didn't stop them from being tasty. All the preparations were ready, with everyone floating in the observation deck. The pickup truck detached from the station and began receding at a snail's pace, so as to maintain microgravity. Still, they didn't need to go very far. Within a few minutes, the ship was turning, and within a few more, the entire spaceborne structure was visible through the window with an impressive backdrop of stars. It was time. A button two and a half meters in diameter, red, naturally, had been constructed specifically for this occasion. Eighteen people pressed the button together. The arc lamps came alive all at once. The lasers activate a moment later, sending the light bouncing off a reflective five-point star at the top. Light twinkled over the many balls of ice which glowed and brightened the shadow of the planet behind them. The genetically modified ivy covering the truss structure, definitely green despite the vacuum of space, completed the picture. It was, without a doubt, the best tree ever. End of story. I'd quickly like to thank all the T5 channel members and patrons. Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Lord Azrakal, Holly's sister, Dragzoon WRE, and Ambrose Catel. Thank you very much.